So it's that process of having that big goal out there, but also those inner incremental steps along the way, which, you know, for me was was challenging and powerful and tested every inch of me, but in the end really, you know, led to a beautiful outcome. For me, it's always been about the journey, about the adventure, um, and about, you know, living my passion, and that's been enough reward for me. That's adventure athlete Colin O'Brady, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you doing? It's Rich Roll. I am your host. This is the Rich Roll Podcast. You know what I do here, right? Each week, I sit down with the best and the brightest across all categories of health, wellness, diet, nutrition, fitness, entrepreneurship, spirituality, in the case of today's guest, adventure sports. Why do I do this? To help you guys unlock and unleash your best, most authentic selves. So thank you for tuning in today, for subscribing on iTunes, for always using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. I'm continuing this new trend of doing the intro without any script whatsoever, winging it. It makes me very uncomfortable, nervous. Uh, This might be a little rough around the edges, but people seem to like it last week for the most part. So I'm going to give it a stab again, and we'll just see how it goes. Uh, One thing I want to comment on uh, before I get into today's guest is 2016 for me is going to be a lot about video. I have committed to uploading one new YouTube video a week. I'm also doubling down on Snapchat. I've been doing a lot on Snapchat around morning routines. You can find me there at I am Rich Roll, I-A-M Rich Roll. Why am I doing this? Well, video has always been uh, a very underdeveloped aspect of the advocacy work that I do. And I've just made this decision that for 2016, I want to explore that and really develop that. It does not mean uh, that I'm going to reduce my attention to the podcast. If anything, I'm doubling down on the podcast. So this has nothing to do with the podcast. The podcast will always be the podcast. I'm just as excited, if not more excited about the podcast than I ever have been. So no worries there. Okay, today's guest, Colin O'Brady, very interesting guy, pro triathlete, adventurer, athlete. Uh, he's got a very compelling, unique story. Basically, this is a guy who, uh, when he graduated from Yale, I think he graduated in 2008, he took the year off to travel across the world. And he was in Southeast Asia when he suffered uh, an accident and was severely burned, sustaining injuries that covered about a quarter of his entire body. And there was some... Uh, speculation that he may never walk again normally. And as he was convalescing in the hospital in Asia, he made a commitment to himself that someday uh, he would do a triathlon. And not only does he learn how to walk again, and not only does he ultimately complete a triathlon, he actually wins the amateur division of the Chicago Triathlon in 2009, just one year after his accident, and literally only months after he began to actually train with any direction whatsoever. It was essentially his very first triathlon. At the time, he's this commodities trader in Chicago, and literally overnight, he quits his job, and he's on a plane to Australia to pursue a career as a pro triathlete. And his dream of becoming an Olympian, which is like this crazy, unbelievable story, right? Uh, So over the last five years, he's fared pretty well racing all over the world on the ITU circuit, but he started to feel like there was something missing in his life. And that's when he dreams up this crazy Explorers Grand Slam challenge uh, to become the fastest person and the youngest person to climb the highest mountain on each of the seven continents 
and trek to both the South and the North Poles. Only 42 people in documented history have actually accomplished this. Only two have done it in under a year, and Colin is striving to get it done in just over five months. And along the way, he's attempting to raise a million dollars in charity to combat childhood obesity. So this is a crazy, amazing story. I want to get much more into Colin and his adventure in a minute. But before we do that... We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentous's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? 
Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. All right, so I sat down with Colin, I think it was the second week of December. Yeah, yeah, it was December 10th to hear all about his life and this amazing challenge. It's a challenge he calls Beyond 7-2, which literally just began January 1. When I sat down with him, he was in the final days of getting ready before departing for Antarctica to tackle the first challenge, which is skiing to the South Pole. And I checked in with his fiance today to get an update because I wanted to be completely contemporaneous with where he's at now leading into this podcast. And it looks like he is gonna reach the South Pole on either Saturday, January 9th, or more likely Sunday, January 10th. So literally by the time you're listening to this, uh, he will have accomplished that first, uh, that first goal. Apparently he's traveled about 44 miles from the drop-off point. He's still got 16 to go. It's an average of negative 28 degrees. I assume that's Celsius. And once he completes uh, reaching the South Pole, he's gonna go direct to Mount Vincent without any rest days whatsoever. Apparently they're already behind schedule due to bad weather that delayed the start during the first week in Antarctica. So anyway, I'm gonna stop burying the lead. Uh, let's just hear from Colin, all right? Should we do that? Let him tell us the story instead of me? Let's do that. Got the full setup now. You, man. you heard you heard the very first one. I in, think in so. Kauai? I think so. Yeah, That's yeah. Crazy. Someone turned me onto it when I was there on Kauai, and I think you had, did. You do the first one there. I did. Yeah, we were uh, we were living at Common Ground. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, right? Five minutes from my dad's house. That's crazy. So yeah. your dad has an organic farm on the North Shore. Yeah, yeah. He, has he always had that. He's been there since 1999. Uh -huh. So yeah, my sisters, uh, my sisters were raised. Um, on Kauai, my stepsisters, uh -huh. and then they left to go to the mainland because the public schools weren't weren't great there. So right. they came to the mainland, and that's when their mom met my dad, uh, and we're right about the same age. So I was a 
you know, uh, I guess 13 uh-huh. uh, when that all happened. And so that must from, have shook things up a little bit. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, but it ended up being great because my sister, uh, there were a couple, two, two sisters on board from that, uh, that crew. But, um, yeah, my sister ended up coming, uh, uh, being the exact same age as me in school. Now mm-hmm. I was married to my childhood best friend, actually, and they have two kids. So wow. <laughs> that's exciting. But as far as Kauai, it was great because my stepmom always planned to go back to Kauai. It was just to come to the mainland of Portland, Oregon, where I grew up just for, for the, them to finish high school. Right, right, right. And so, uh, so yeah, so we been, ended up spending a ton of time over there, and my, my parents moved over there, and it was great for me, you know, just assimilating in the community immediately because, you know, you've got siblings who are the same age uh, right. right there, so it can be a little bit tough in Hawaii to do it's, that immediately. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the North Shore of Kauai is its own universe, yeah. man, and, like, try to, trying to, like, penetrate the social structure there totally. is tricky. You totally. know? It's like most people, they go to Hawaii on vacation. When you're living there, it's very different. Yes, and, yes. and there's an island mentality For that sure. can take a little bit of time and patience to connect with. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to, no, absolutely. to put it in a political. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's being kind. No, yeah. it's a it's a beautiful place. It's paradise for sure. But like you said, so many people just see it from the tourist perspective. So to mm-hmm. really get that local perspective on it and have that, you know, feel like my second home now, and have my dad be a, a farmer there. He's got a beautiful small small plot, but a beautiful piece of land out there, just not far outside of Kilauea, which is not far from yeah. Common Ground, where you guys were and uh yeah it's amazing it's just it's paradise so. yeah that's 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 really cool so what does he grow there so much stuff i guess he's most known for his uh white pineapples um onions but really he has the gamut i mean he's got all the greens you know bok choy chard so many different types of kale apple uh, apple bananas papayas i mean you name it uh-huh. three different types of avocados lemons lime i mean everything so that's cool so is he, is he able to make it work as a business like, yeah he yeah he is yeah and... he's so he's at uh the farmer's markets there's the one right by common ground there mm-hmm. just across the gas station from kilauea um as well as uh he's at the kilauea farmer's market and then a bunch of the restaurants in town source a lot of their local produce and stuff from him so yeah he's been able to to make it work for himself it's you know it's a labor uh-huh. of love farming it's a lot of hard work yeah, uh, and he's got easy he's got woofers out there which is uh so people that help to work on the farm and live there and mm-hmm. trying to share the lifestyle so it's kind of a communal whole vibe going yeah. on there which the, is wo- pretty the cool. woofer lifestyle is like, a, <laughs> that's like well when we were living at common ground we were sharing yurts with a bunch of woofers. yes yes and uh and it was interesting because a lot of them had like graduate degrees in yeah. permaculture oh, yeah. like they're not just like hippie you oh, know, dropouts no. like they're into it like they've yeah. studied it they understand it they're passionate about you know organic farming and they yeah. understand it on like a whole nother level oh for sure which is really cool because for my dad i think when he first started this 15 years ago or whatever he thought oh it's going to just be like these surfers coming through kind of need a place to stay do a little work here and there and you know we've had a people few people stay come through like that which has been totally great but he's mm-hmm. really realized that there's some people like you said that have like formal background in this really you know mature in their training and understanding of this and really want to like learn even more depth of organic farming so he's had some of his people on his farm lots of one two three year stays like really established community there rather than this you know there's still a bit of a transient that but he, you know he likes that he's got yeah. this whole community so yeah it's called olana <clears throat> farm it's a cool little place uh definitely definitely did you, awesome so. did you like email me a long time ago like i feel like i remember there was somebody who was a professional triathlete who like maybe around the like right around the time we left 
Yeah, Kawhi. I think this is I what I'm saying. Did. I think I got turned on. T- I heard yeah. your podcast, and you guys have been on Kawhi. I think I made a tweeted to you like, "Oh man, it's awesome you're starting this podcast." Like, I'm a pro triathlete on yeah, Kawhi. Yeah, yeah. Like, we I should talk that. at some point. I remember like, that. Whatever. Yeah, and you so, were like blogging from you know training. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Training, that. being on the farm, you know, eating the fresh food, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I feel like our, our universes have been circling each other for quite some time. Yeah, so I'm sure we have quite an overlap. Yeah, in people that we know and for all that sure. Kind of stuff, it's fun so. to finally sit down with you and have have a chat. Have yeah, it man. Awesome. Thanks for uh thanks for making the time oh, my uh, pleasure. it's an exciting time for you you're on the precipice of of launching into perhaps the greatest adventure you could ever conceptualize <laughs> yeah <laughs> how are you feeling feeling good man you know obviously we'll get into the the depths of what it what it really means but you know we dreamed up this project uh about 18 months ago now my fiance and i jenna um so she's she's kind of my rock in all of this mm-hmm. we kind of do do everything together she's been on the road with me as a professional triathlete for a long time kind of just managing all our logistics and all the various other pieces in the background that go on and yeah we dreamed up this project so in uh, 15 days from now actually we uh, I embarked to set off to set a hopefully set a world record to go to the climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents as well as go an expedition both the north pole and the south pole um, right so, so let's uh let's dissect this yes it's, you're calling it beyond seven two exactly the seven is for the seven summits and the yeah. two is for the two poles yeah yeah um and there ha- so so the idea is to be the fastest as well as the youngest person to ever tackle all seven summits and both poles yeah and exactly. there's only been 42, 42 people, people who have, who have ever done, done that. Done that, yeah, right? Yeah. And and how old is the youngest person who's ever done it? I'm not sure. I think it's about 37, 38 is the youngest. I'm uh-huh. 30. Just I'm 30. I'll, be, I'll turn 31 during the project, so um, significantly younger than the average person. But of the 42 people that have done it, you know, most of those people have done it. Um, you know, it's a great ach- lifetime achievement they for anyone. Over the course had of their, their five life. years, ten yeah. years, fifteen years, or something like that. You know, and each only one of these expeditions, piece by piece. Two have done it in under a year. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. Right? And you're trying so, to do it in six months. Yeah. So the the record <laughs> that I'm I'm after is uh, six months, eleven days is the uh, the duration. Uh, so hopefully under that. But the way we have it scheduled now, if everything goes to plan, which of course it won't go all go to plan. <laughs> uh-huh. But if it did all go to plan, we do it in about five week, five months. Excuse me, five months. Five so months. so you've got a little in, bit of buffer. Yeah, you've built in like five yeah. weeks of buffer. Yeah, exactly. So. And and of the two that have done it in uh, in under a year. What's the fastest? What's the current record? The current record six months, eleven days. So oh, okay. that was a so guy, a Welsh guy named Richard Parks, um, who did that in two thousand eleven. And then mm-hmm. the other person is a American woman uh, named Vanessa O'Brien, who's from Boston. So mm-hmm. um, I've never had any much interaction with Richard, but um, Vanessa has actually been a great mentor to help me kind of figure out some of the bits and pieces and the insane logistics and all that that it takes to do all these things back to back. So that's yeah, been I mean, useful. this is no small thing. I yeah, mean, I would imagine the planning alone, you know, is taking you the full 18 months and oh, yeah. in order to let's say you do break the record to verify that how do, are there sort of like yeah you know you have to have in place in order to it for it to be legit yeah it's funny you know mountaineering has a storied history around this and obviously there's been some controversial summits and things over time or disputed summits um for the most part it's a gentleman's game you know there's uh, it's different than you know professional traditional professional sport like triathlon or something like that which there's a governing body and all those sorts mm-hmm. of things you know mountaineering doesn't quite have that um but the mountaineering community is very strong in that so you know what we're going to do is really we're going to try to engage our audience fully in real time through this whole project through you know being on sat phone being on gps posting photos every day all that sort of stuff so there's going to be quite a bit of documentation that should you know be pretty obvious and evident that i did these things but there are also um 
you know, I know Vanessa when she did it, uh, and she also holds the record for the women's fastest, women's fastest for seven summits as well. And for Guinness to approve that, she has uh, certificates from each mountain that actually the people that who are right. there certify that. So we'll we'll make sure to do as much of that as we can to, you know, make sure it's as legit as it possibly can be. Obviously, right. When you get uh, Guinness involved, then it becomes a trickier yeah. thing because they have all kinds of extra requirements, yes. and they also want you to pay them. Yes, it's like a whole, that, it's right? a whole, it's a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, exactly. All right. Well, well, let's break it down. So the first, the first uh, challenge in the seven two is the South Pole. Right? Yeah. Are you going to go directly from L.A. to there? No. So I'm uh, from Portland, Oregon. Um, you know, been living around the world the past five years, being a professional triathlete, and lives all over the place, raced in. 25 different countries, six different continents, been a bit of a whirlwind, an amazing whirlwind at that. Mm -hmm. But um, when we dreamed up this project and knew we were kind of taking a little bit of a pivot, decided to return home full-time to Portland, Oregon. Uh, Traveled a bit still this year for racing, but Portland's been home base. So I'll head back to Portland from LA um, for a couple weeks after this. And then I'm off on Christmas Day for uh, for Antarctica and the start with the South Pole. Yeah, it's it's quickly getting real. Yeah, it is. It is. It's crazy. It's like a, a year and a half in the dreaming, and you mean you know this from preparing for big events and stuff like this. So much of it is real. Yeah, but just not like your... this. <laughs> this is this is a different universe. Yeah, so just getting. I mean, getting to the start line has been as big a challenge as anything. You know, uh-huh. really the journey and the process of that. It's been no small feat to get us here. So I'm I'm proud we're, that we're on the precipice of really really making this you know dream a reality and all the all that goes behind it and the cause and everything that we've got going. Yeah, and we're gonna get into all of that. But, yeah, uh, but to begin so so how many people are traveling with you like what is the entourage the crew support look like yeah it, it really is uh it's different um from peak to peak um there's no one person who's with me throughout the entire journey um Jenna, like I said, being being my rock, also the executive director of our organization, she really is the one person who I'll have continuity with, not in person the whole time, but daily contact with to facilitate mm-hmm. a lot of this. Um, and then on each individual mountain, I have different people coming in. Um, so, for example, on the South Pole and Mount Vincent, which are the first two, Vin- Mount Vincent's the tallest mountain in Ar- Antarctica, mm-hmm. and then the South Pole Trek. <clears throat> I'm just going through a company called Alpine Ascents. It's just a logistics coordinator, you know, a guiding service. Um, and I'm trying to do most of these, you know, independently on my own and whatnot um, to not be in that sort of formally guided context. It's not the way I want to do this, the uh-huh. ethic I want to do it. But Antarctica being as logistically challenging as it is, as prohibitively expensive as it is, all these sorts of things, the the path of least resistance is to just go through the kind of formal context that is established down there. So I'll be with um, three other people on the South Pole Trek um, and about five other people. And the, the guy who I'll be doing the South Pole Trek with, one of the reasons I want to do it with this organization is actually the guy who, a guy named Vern Tejas, who <clears throat> holds the current record for the seven summits, not the seven summits in the poles, but the seven summits. So right. um, a lot of knowledge and you know expertise there a good yeah, way to kind of kick a, things that's off that's a for good sure. guy to have on yeah, board I, yeah. I think right but then uh yeah but then as we get further and along into the trip um really so the next the next phase is Aconcagua which is in Argentina and uh a uh, climbing partner of mine, an Ecuadorian guy who's a good friend of mine, is uh, joining me on that. So it'll just be myself half the time, and then he's coming to meet me for the summit push. Um, and uh, Kilimanjaro will be just me um, out mm-hmm. there. <clears throat> and uh, 
then uh, on Everest and Karsten's Pyramid, I've teamed up uh, with a woman named Masha Gordon, who's someone who I met uh, while I was working or while I was training in Nepal. I was on an expedition in Nepal not long ago, training for all of this. Um, she's a really strong climber there, and so her and I are going to team up for those. So we kind of have used some of the overarching logistics of some of these uh, people over there, but we'll be climbing independently on those mountains. And then last but not least, Denali. I'll be uh, with a childhood friend of mine, a guy named Tucker Cunningham, is going to kind of meet up with me. He lives in Bozeman, Montana. He's like a very experienced mountaineer guide, ski mountaineer and all this. So him and I are going to team up to finish it up with Denali. It would be great to be that. Hopefully that's when we're setting the record. So to be up there with a you know good 20-year-long good friend. friend of mine finishing this thing up will be great. So it's kind of nice. I've got different people coming in at different legs that are going to still be you know fresh and obviously as this goes on i'll be here probably the cumulative fatigue will be adding up and all sorts of that so it's nice to have new blood sort of in, inserted in different pieces and then there's a few small breaks in there not not a ton uh, and that's all of course weather and logistic permitting but jenna will be able to come meet me up on a couple of those places and mm-hmm. uh, and base camps and stuff in the interim so that'll be nice just from a just as much as a physical challenge as the emotional challenge and having those you know recharge energy from the positive vibe of that will be be huge so right 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 so so what's the scariest part of this for you like what's the the one the one aspect of this that you're a little bit like yeah i don't know man um i mean is it everest is it yeah no i mean that's a good question i think that there's there's certainly a lot of fears of course a lot of confidence as well i think the biggest thing that can derail this other than you know some silly injury or something is you know, there's things we, there's a few things we can't control in this. Like I said, we've poured our lives into this mission and this this thing, and a few things like you know, weather has to go away. You yeah. know, then we've obviously we can have some bad weather and sit out some storms and stuff like that. But there's a certain point where you know, there was no one summit at Everest this past year because of the average avalanche and the devastation of the earthquake in Nepal and stuff like that. And of course, we're not hoping for anything like that to happen. But you know, stuff like that's just out of your control. Bad right. luck. So I don't know if that's worth being fearful or anxious about. But it's certainly you know. Well, those are, on your mind. Yeah, that, those are things you can't control. Yeah, yeah. You know so I think, mean? and you've built in this five-week yeah. buffer to yeah. account for that. I would imagine. But yeah. you know, there's probably going to be moments where you're going to want to go. You're, you know, the clock's ticking, and you know, the weather. You know, it's going to be that decision of should we go, should we not go, should we wait. You know, I, I would imagine you'll yeah. find yourself in that position. Certainly, you know, and so much of of mountaineering is gauging that risk and being comfortable taking certain risks, but also, you know, being smart about what you do. So for me, of course, I'd love to set this record. You know, that's a big goal of this project, as well as our charitable endeavors with this project, you know, to inspire kids to be outside and be healthy. But really, you know, coming home safely with all my fingers and toes, that that's obviously first Mm -hmm. and foremost, number one priority. And you got to put that in perspective. And it's, you know, been good to sit down with my family, friends, Jenna, you know, and have those conversations while I'm sitting here at sea level and thinking, you know, completely straight to, you know, realize that there's going to be maybe some tough decisions along this road and to make the right decisions when I'm out there. So that's, you know, a huge, a huge part of this. Like I said, I'm a competitive guy. I come from a competitive sporting background and whatnot, but, you know, this is, you know, it's something that I'm hoping to achieve, but I realize that there's, you know, dangers and risks and there's, you know, certain things that I'm not willing, you know, to risk just yeah. to achieve this goal, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. What's the biggest difference between scaling the peaks and the two pole? Uh, yeah, no, that's the two poles. I mean, those are different. Very different. Very different. So, you know, I've got a quite a bit of background in mountaineering, having grown up in Portland, Oregon, amidst the Cascades, climbed a, a ton growing up, and I've been fortunate enough to intersperse through my triathlon training of going off to different peaks around the world and that. So, but the polar travel was something that'll be entirely new for me. Um, it really, what it is for this record, the Explorers Grand Slam World Record, it's uh, 
basically going the last degree of latitude uh, from to both of the poles. Mm-hmm. So um, that means you're basically dropped off at the 89th degree, which is 69 miles from the pole. Um, and then you, from there, you're you know not resupplied or supported. So basically, you have to have all your gear in a sled behind you, which is starts out at around 100 pounds. Um, and you're on cross-country skis, and you're basically pulling the sled across the cold, desolate <laughs> polar yeah. regions. Um, so that's really more of a, it's different. There's there's a few technical, you know, aspects in it, but for the most part, that's really just long endurance days, enduring the cold, enduring pulling this heavy sled mm-hmm. hour after hour after hour until, you know, get there and navigate to the pole. So that's very different in scope than uh, what the mountaineering challenges yeah. are. Are there landmarks along the way? Like, how? I, I mean, I assume when you actually reach the pole, there's, some, there's something there to tell you that <laughs> You're in the right yeah. place, but are there like way stops along the way? There aren't. So there's nowhere that you're resupplied. I mean, from from what my understanding is, I've never been to Antarctica. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but you know, you get dropped off and you look in all directions, and it's basically white. You know, Antarctica. People don't normally think about this, but Antarctica is actually the largest desert in the world. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually snow that much there, but when it snows, it never melts, right? Um, and so in that case, you're just going there. But there is, uh, people have probably seen this photo of uh, like this silver globe that's at the South Pole. So then it's come flagged around it. So that acts actually a permanent landmark um, there. So you know you've arrived then. Or the North Pole is kind of this funny other thing. It's not a continent. It's just floating ice, mm-hmm. right? And it's always moving. And so you're actually, when you're in the North Pole, um, it's very different than Antarctica. So the North Pole, you're moving across floating ice, which means that on every, any given day, when you try to go these 69 miles, you could hypothetically go to bed in your tent and wake up and realize that the drift has pushed you back five miles. Right, right, right. Or it could push you forward a few miles, you know, and it's probably a little bit of both is ultimately what will happen. Um, so much so, more reliant on GPS. Yeah, and the funny it. thing about it is when you get there, there's no, you know, it's really a, the North Pole is a point at the bottom of the ocean in this case. There's no continent there. And there's uh-huh. no land mass. And so you can be standing at the North Pole. It looks just like everything else and then you know five minutes later you look at gps like oh no it's over there now Uh, um so it's kind of this like strange moving target uh very different than arriving at the top of a mountain or even at the south pole where you're you know there's a a, sort of a landmark there the north pole is kind of just a point in a a momentary Mm. space of time that you're sort of passing through as you float float over it so it's kind of an interesting one has has global climate change like impacted how people approach the poles or specifically the North Pole? Yeah, specifically the North Pole for sure. Um, my understanding is, uh, so interestingly enough, this might be obvious once I say it, but it's something I had to learn that there's only one sunrise and one sunset at the mm-hmm. pole each year, right? Of course, it stays, you know, it'll be, be like permanent sunrise or permanent sunset for a month or something as that sun's coming up or going down, um, kind of that twilight phase. But um, as a result of uh, global warming, from what people have told me up at the North Pole, that the season is getting shorter and shorter and shorter for being able to be on the ice. So um, one of the cha- big challenges of this project actually is to be, you know, at the North Pole, I need to start the first, the earliest I can get there from the first sunrise is basically the earliest part of April, about April 4th, when I'll be flying out there. Um, and the season ends, you know, three and a half weeks later. So mm-hmm. unless you're willing to be in the polar regions when it's complete darkness, um, it's melting out too quickly. Big open leads are coming up. And that's just the, Ar- you know, the Arctic Ocean below oh, you. So yeah, you know, it's yeah, not yeah. a place you necessarily want to be. And and you wouldn't even be able to get to it because it's water. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's obviously not good for the planet that we're seeing 
seeing that and from just an explorer and scientific perspective of what people have said. Of course, I've, I've this will be my first time up there, but from all the sort of experts that I've drawn on to build this campaign have told me, yeah, it's changing fast. So who knows how much longer people will be able to do that. Hopefully, you know, we can reverse those trends and, you know, we can continue to explore this region of the world, but it's par- apparently changing very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And amongst the, the peaks that you have to scale, you know, what's the most technically difficult peak? Yeah, um, I think... Well, Karstens Pyramid, which is in Indonesia, is a truly technical rock climbing spire. So it includes like a Torellian traverse where you actually have to, you know, take ropes across a massive, you know, opening, mm-hmm. um, as well as a few technical rock climbing moves. Um, so from that perspective, that's fairly technical. Um, from a true mountaineering perspective, I would say what you're going to see on Denali would most people might consider more technical than Everest because Everest, of course, has the fixed ropes on the main route. Um, And I'm also looking to potentially climb uh, the West Rib route rather than the West Bustress on Denali, which is off of this sort of standard route, a different route. So that'll make that a bit more technically challenging for that. So I think, um, you know... It may it might well be Everest if you didn't have the fixed ropes, but you have the fixed ropes that really diminishes some of the risk with the, the technical mm-hmm. nature. But if um, they all really they're very different mountains from each other, you mm-hmm. know, each one has its own sort of big challenge. You know, Aconcago is not particularly technical in any regard, but it's almost twenty three thousand feet. You know, right. the tallest mountain outside of the Himalayas. So you know that in itself is is challenging. So there's really you know different different pieces that are uh, challenging for sure. And are you using oxygen for all of these? No, only Everest. Everest will be the only one I use oxygen for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so that's uh, I think necessary on Everest, particularly because I'm doing these so quickly back to back. But no, no other ones will I be using oxygen. One of the actually, it just coming back to one of your original questions. One of my biggest fears for sure is what I'm thinking of is the last third of this project, but that's the North Pole, Everest, and Denali. Those are the final three. Um, and speaking about the sort of the time when you can get to the North Pole. April 4th is the earliest I can start the North Pole, and that's going to take me about 10 or so days to get there from the last degree. Um, so I'm not leaving the North Pole till April 15th. Now, most people start their Everest expedition around April 1st. Mm-hmm. So best case scenario, I'm two plus weeks behind the normal acclimatization schedule that's happening in Everest. And of course, as we just talked about, the North Pole is floating above the water. So it's truly at sea level. Um, so there's, even though I'll be acclimatized from some of the previous mountains, I'll lose a bit of that in sort of the most crucial acclimatization period. So one of my fears for sure is with Everest that I'm cutting it pretty close, you know, in terms of the amount of time that I'll be able to spend on the mountain in preparation. Cause of course you need to be there for weeks at a time to get your blood ready to mm-hmm. acclimatize and and that i assume you figured out this is the 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 most efficient schedule right? yes and yes it still has these like really narrow time windows for you to get it done yeah yeah i mean there's really only if you want to do it under six months this is really the only way to do it you know there's a few of those other ones you know denali everest north and south pole really need to hit the weather windows you can kind of move karsten's pyramid you can kind of move kilimanjaro mount elbers around in russia a little bit um you know in there where the schedule fits but those other ones have pretty specific windows that you I mean you're not going to the south pole in june it's the middle of winter it's you know minus 100 there uh-huh. so you know that's not happening everest really is only climbed in the pre-monsoon in that mid-may you know period of time 
Um, you know, and the North Pole has a very small window, like I said. So, yeah, there's kind of like a really pretty specific way in which you need to do it. We've kind of thought through it as many different ways as we could and kind of keep coming back, to, back to this is the one. only yeah. way to do it in the way we want the and speed we want to do it. You're, you're basically going to travel from one to the next. It's not like you're going to come back to the U.S. Or no, like when that, I leave so. on the 25th of December, um, I'm not coming planning to be back in the U.S. at all until I'm on Denali, which will be the, you know, the last peak of mm-hmm. the mall in June. So, yeah, it's pretty much the, my downtime, if you will, is a 20-hour international flight to the next destination <laughs> more and, than anything. And I assume, or at least I hope, that you're making a documentary out of this. It's yeah. It's documented. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, for us, you know, so much of this project, and uh, I think you'll probably ask me about it, but, you know, I want to talk about the, the cause behind this because really the charitable element of this is a huge piece of it, which is, you know, inspiring kids and combating the childhood obesity epidemic and raising money around that. But a huge piece of that is also the awareness piece. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to document this project. We think, um, you know, telling this story in real time is, you know, um, really a special way to share this story and share the, the narrative of behind this. So, yeah, we have a, a documentary filmmaker, a production company out of uh, the Bay Area called Trep Life is uh, kind of sp- you know, spearheading the documentary efforts on this project, um, which would be great. And then in addition to that, you know, I plan to tell this story just through my own social media channels, through our own media channels. So at beyond underscore seven two is is our handle. And, you know, with through sat phone technology, through satellites, all that sort of stuff, we, you know, have the ability just to tell that story which is cool Uh because you know even you know certainly 10 or more years ago but even five years ago that technology didn't necessarily exist people would leave you know certainly you know the history of expeditions over the years have been someone saying hey we're going to do this and then coming back three or six or five months later and say hey I, i did this and this is what happened and so it's pretty remarkable that you know, we can kind of tell this story day by day, yeah. uh, which is what we plan to do, which I think will be a fun way to engage the audience yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Very cool. Can you, like, how do sat phones work? Can you, can you like, configure an iPhone to be a sat phone? I mean, could, I'm thinking, like, yeah. can you periscope from yeah. a sat phone? Like, yeah, so there's a couple. Can you be able to do the, you <laughs> know, that couple, kind of stuff? There's a couple different ways that it works. So the, the most challenging places, believe it or not, are the poles because – the satellites usually fly around the equator, and so the poles don't pick up the best service. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a, a kind of a, a one way to do it, but it's not great. So um, it kind of needs to be really low resolution images, very small files to be able to be sent. Um, but the rest of the time, I'm actually going to be carrying um, a, basically a small little wireless satellite modem with me, um, which you know, is, is comes at an expense to do this, but we think it's worth it for the project. And it, apparently I'm able to FaceTime, I'm able to, you know, mm. send short video clips. I don't know about Periscope that might totally yeah, overload yeah. the system, um, but it's worth, it's worth trying for sure. Um, so, you know, that's something we gotta, we gotta kind of make sure it works and everything. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing what you can do now through, through this technology. And it's like, again, I think it's closer to a dial up speed than what we're accustomed to, right. but yeah, right. Bluetooth to an iPhone and you can send photos photos that way and take photographs and all that sort of stuff, yeah. which is pretty amazing. I mean, it's amazing comparing how remote some of these places are that you can even have yeah. that access. And, and people can can participate in the journey in real time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's right. what, I mean, that's what we really want. And there's and then this other thing I'm carrying with me is just a small device called a DeLorme inReach, which basically connects to satellites, but Bluetooth to my iPhone that allows me to text. Um, mm. You know, again, simple, simple text, you know, 160 character type of, you know, things, tweets and text. But, you know, just to be able to have that, to be able able to talk back to Jenna or to home or hopefully the people that are engaging with this project have some people you know reach out or shout out or you know <laughs> family reach out when I'm having a tough day all that you know will make a big difference right, to right, right. You know, the, all of this for sure so I'm grateful for that 
All right. So what is, you know, why are you doing this? Like what inspired <laughs> this? You know, how did you come up with this idea and like, what's it all about for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, the biggest thing is we'd have to take it back eight years, I think really, um, to where this all began, this whole journey in endurance sports, you know, began for me. Um, you know, I'd been an elite athlete, you know, my whole life. Had swam in college, obviously. Mm-hmm. You so you swam. Relate to that. You swam. It, you you grew up swimming high, in high school swimming in Portland. Yeah, right? exactly. You swam for Multnomah. No, I swam for a smaller team called PPST Portland Park Swim Team, which is now known as Portland Aquatic Club, but it's just like a small local team. But the MAC, yeah, Multnomah Athletic yeah. Club, where a lot of know it a lot still of guys. Exists, from there. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a big okay. big machine cranking out some great athletes year in and year out for sure. And then you, uh, so you took your talents to Yale. I did. I took my talents to Yale. Was, um, was, is Frank Keefe still the co-chair? <laughs> Thank, <laughs> I, I love you, Frank, if you're out there. But uh-huh. thankfully, he has uh, passed the baton down. Uh, a guy named Tim Wise is now the head coach there, who was my assistant coach when I was there. Uh, so okay. I still know him real well. And actually, we, we talk frequently. Right. But Frank um, was Frank, Frank was, was the, the coach he when was I was the there. Coach yeah. Okay, so cool. for people who don't know the swimming world, obviously, Rich, you do. but <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, Frank's a legend. Yeah. He's been the coach at Yale forever and yeah. ever and ever. He was, uh, I, there used to be this thing called the National Sports Festival yeah. when I was in high school, and it was sort of like a mini Olympics, but just in the United States, and they yeah. would divide the U.S. up into north, south, east, and west. Mm-hmm. Um, and my senior year in high school, I made the East team, yeah. and uh, and Frank was the head coach of that, yeah. so I met him yeah. that way. exactly. So yeah, he was a big name in the Northeast swimming for a long time. He was assistant Olympic coach in the 84 Olympics, and mm-hmm. I think he coached Yale all up for just under 40 years, 35 years maybe. It was, mm-hmm. in, it was in the 30-year range when I was right. there, and then he stayed on another five-plus years after I graduated. So been around a long time, absolute legend uh, of a coach. So, yeah, I swam under him for four years at Yale. Um, and you swam breaststroke? Yeah, I was a breaststroke swimmer, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. So, um, and then uh, after that, you know, I kind of just like, you know, most people, I think, at the end of their collegiate swimming career, unless they're going to go on, you know, to make an Olympic Games or something like that, it's kind of end of your yeah, athletic it's, career it's for, for most people. Um, and I certainly thought I fell into that category for sure. Um, and having an economics degree, sort of thought my, my next step would be to go work on Wall Street uh, mm-hmm. in, in some capacity, although that never, you know, felt like the perfect fit for me. It just kind of seemed like the next, the, the path that I was that's on. That's what you do, man. You yeah. graduate from <laughs> Yale, you got an economics degree, like that's your option. Yeah, I, that is true. It's funny though, because, you know, growing up in Portland, Oregon, until I was exposed to living on the East Coast, like I'm, I went to Yale when I was 17. I was young out of high school mm. and just going out there from this West Coast, you know, organic farming, family, natural food co-op all this it was a it was a trip for me it took me a while to adjust to that east coast mentality yeah, you didn't come from phillips and no or, or no uh, field yeah <laughs> ex- i didn't i not, didn't come from prep school so you know a lot, a lot of my best friends now are, are, are from that subset of course i made great friends out there in the end but it was a whole new world for me going out there and i didn't i don't even think i knew what investment banking was before i uh started mm-hmm. school um but of course you know in that environment you're you know quickly swept up in in that environment um but I think also my Portland roots and just, you know, my curiousness about the world and all that said, you know what, you got to go, go travel. I'm 21 when I graduated Mm -hmm. from school and everyone was taking these jobs and, you know, maybe there was a lot of money to be had. I had, you know, not much. I had a few thousand dollars saved up in my bank account from painting houses in the summer with my buddy. You know, that's what I did instead of taking these fancy internships and decided, hey, you know, I'm going to go see the see a bit of the world for a year before I, uh, you know, kind of settle into what I think my career might be. And so I, like I said, scraped a few pennies together and took a surfboard and a backpack and 
and uh, just set out by myself to travel all over the world and um, just you know hostel to hostel and mm-hmm. basically just kind of surfing and seeing what seeing what was out there it wasn't wasn't glamorous but it was certainly a wonderful time in life you know staying in hostels and eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but you know yeah. meeting tons of people and having a great time that's so. uh, that's like the I mean. Your parents must be hippies, right? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Full <laughs> <All> on. <right. laughs> yeah. Huge. Well, we even say your mom like owns uh, natural food. Yeah, markets. my my uh, my mom and my stepdad uh, uh, co-founded a natural foods chain called New Seasons Market in Portland. So uh-huh. it's kind of like a local version of uh, Whole Foods and that. So yeah, the words right. sustainable and local and all these things were thrown around my house in the '80s until the rest of the world started to hear hear those uh-huh. words until uh, you know the mid 2000s maybe. So yeah, it was right. a, a hippie hippie upbringing. I was actually. <laughs> Uh, to, to put it full into perspective, I was my mom was uh, in school in Olympia, Washington, when she had me at Evergreen State College. Her and my father were married at that point, but she was young, and I was born on a hippie commune mm. with about twenty people watching my home birth. And Bob Marley's Redemption song was playing on repeat uh-huh. throughout the entire through the entire <laughs> thing. So that's kind of how I entered the world. Yeah, so as, right. as you can, I'm uh, getting the picture. Now. <laughs> yeah. There was a like I said. How did you a, not end up at like UC Santa Cruz or something? <laughs> Probably might have been a better fit. Yeah. <laughs> it might have been a better fit. So then this sort of East Coast mentality, sort of thrown in there at age 17, was a, a whole a whole different thing for me. It actually took me couple years to really adjust to it. Actually, halfway through, I uh, took a semester off. Yale does not allow you to get credits for this, but I took a semester off to mm-hmm. go to uh, Patagonia, do a Knowles course down there, where I spent mm-hmm. three months sea kayaking, mountaineering, and all this sorts of stuff. And then went back and finished my degree, which for me was just a much needed kind of break, but definitely a break from the... So I think I've been like, you know, kind of had this in my mind. Yeah, sort of this dual, dualistic, yeah. dual life kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, so hold on, real quick aside, because it just yeah. popped in my head. Uh, did you, when you were at Yale, did you swim with, uh, who's the guy who became the truck driver and uh, and now he's like inspiring uh, truck drivers to get help? He like changed his name. No, I'm going to... Now I feel bad because I can't remember his name right now. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. Okay. Basically, he swam at Yale, and uh, <clears throat> and then he, like, disappeared. Mm-hmm. And nobody had talked to him for a very long time, smart young guy or whatever. Yeah. And he ended up becoming, like, a truck driver because he just loved, like, seeing the U.S. and, and having his own schedule. How old is he stuff. about? Um, I don't know. Younger he might than be, me? He might be a little bit young. He might be a little bit older than you. Okay. Actually, yeah, hmm. I think so. Yeah. I want to. Yeah. I want to know about this guy. We'll, Sounds awesome. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll put links in the show notes to it, and we'll when we're done with this, we'll look For online sure. and figure out the whole thing out. For but it's sure. actually an amazing story. But yeah, anyway, no, it sounds amazing. Um, all right, so. So you're having your Leonardo DiCaprio, the beach, you know, exactly. sort of experience exactly. right, in Southeast Asia. Yes, yes. And um, so, yeah, the trip I've been going well so far. I actually met Jenna, who is now my fiance, mm-hmm. um, on a beach in Fiji, you know. So things were going pretty darn well on this trip so far, meeting tons of people. And then, yeah, I'm in I'm in Thailand on a small beach in Koh Tao, and kind of tragedy struck for me. And I was uh, severely burned in a fire um, there. It was... Uh, you know, I grin when I say it, but uh, I was partaking in what is somewhat common in Thailand, but fire dancing. So I was jumping a flaming jump rope, which uh, in uh-huh. retrospect, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. Not not a smart thing to do, but 
sold lulled into a bit of a false sense of security, I suppose, by just how many people are participating in this and how right. common that is there and all that sorts of stuff. And um, the the rope that night um, tripped me up and uh, gas spread all the way up to my neck, lit my body completely on fire. So it's like they they soak the rope in kerosene, exactly, right? light it on fire, and yeah. then it was still like there was still liquid, it was still wet. And yeah, it's, it's exactly. Just got all over so you. yeah, imagine a big rope, like a twenty foot rope, like you would jump when you were a kid out in the street, but two you know a different person holding on at either end and jumping in the middle and somehow you know I always happened so fast so I can't completely remember but it somehow got tripped my legs and I think the car- excess kerosene splattered my clothing and that lit on fire and before mm-hmm. I knew it there was basically fire to my neck um and uh, you were clothed like were you wearing long pants or shorts no or? so I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt but no shoes um which actually kind of saved me in a lot of regards that I had at least you know those clothes on because I Jumped in the ocean uh, to put out the flames, um, which certainly saved my life. But as you can imagine, you know, and then twenty five percent of your body having been burned and jumping in a saltwater ocean is certainly not yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. anything without the, in, the infection. Yeah, uh, quotient just that the, the saltwater, the pain, all that sort of stuff is a grim situation to say the least. Um, and then I came out of the water, and uh, fortunately, like I said, I've been traveling by myself pretty much for most of this trip. But a good buddy of mine, David, the one who I mentioned is uh, now married to my sister, um, happened to be there with me uh and so you know he looked down we both looked down at my legs and knew that we were in a pretty bad situation straight away um and my clothes were charred and kind of charred and crumpled like when we're so we're expecting you know pretty bad situation and so he calls over the first person at the hotel hey you know we need some help here and a a guy pulls up on a, a moped you know we're on a tiny little island drives me down a dirt path on his moped to this tiny little, you know, hut, Mm -hmm. um, basically, which is the closest thing they have to a hospital. And it's, you know, a one room hut there. Um, Fortunately, they had a few of the basics, you know, penicillin, morphine, um, but not much beyond that. And, uh, and are you like conscious through this whole thing? And yeah. like, I mean, how are you walking? Like, are you aware of how bad it is or how I mean, we're, I would imagine you're on a tremendous amount of pain. Yeah. I mean, the pain was unimaginable. It was horrible amount of pain. Um, and, you know, one of the things that happened when they did lie me down in this hospital bed is they cut my clothes off me because they were charred. And we were kind of ex- all expecting to see, you know, burns on my chest, burns everywhere, basically. And, you know, to a great surprise in a positive way, I was only burned basically mid-thigh down all the way to my feet. But where the clothes had been, shorts, mm. T-shirt, there was no burn. So I had a small burn on my right hand, but pretty much it was severe second and third degree burns on both of my legs so it's pretty bad but it could have been if it had been 50 60 70 percent burns mm-hmm. you just look up some of these statistics online in terms of burns in these countries and the infection rate and that you know you're you're facing a you know pretty life or death situation at that point but you know it's interesting i was i was so scared and i was so fortunate to have you know david there with me you know they're starting to you know look after my wounds and i'm looking around we're in this tiny little shack in thailand and i said to him i just you know he's like i'm gonna faint i'm out of it and i kind of grab hold of him at this one really intense moment i said david like i need you right now i need mm-hmm. you with me right now and you got to be my eyes my ears i can't tell what's going on and what's the infection are these needles clean you know all that sort of stuff and uh just in a really you know sometimes these horrible things do some to bring out the best or at least bring in these intense bonding moments you know he's been one of my closest childhood friends my entire life but you know there was something that happened that night where he just that moment he switched on and was just so there for me in mm-hmm. such an amazing way um you know so much so that you know we're, we're two you know young adults 22 23 years old at this point and you know once they finally did get me my legs bandaged were lying in there and they said 
they're not going to they're not going to be able to take me to a true hospital, uh, which isn't even really much of a hospital, but at least on the next island over on Kosamui until the morning. They're going they can get a boat over there and all this sort of stuff. But it's going to be twelve hours just lying there. And mm. finally, once the adrenaline started to wear off, I just broke down. I was crying. I was mm. so scared. And you know, David actually you know got in bed beside of me and just held me through the night and said, mm. "I don't know how, how we're going to do this, but we're going to get through this. You know, I love you, and we're going to figure this out." But you know, to your, your question, it's, burns are a strange injury because I think, you know, as a kid growing up, I'm sure you can relate to this. You know, you break a bone, you skin a knee, you know, sprain your ankle. Those are things you kind of have context for. Um, but severe burns, unless you've been around an injury like that, it's you don't I mean, at least I didn't. And I would imagine most people don't like, oh, yeah, that's exactly the treatment looks like this and it takes this long. And here's yeah. what you can expect and all that sort of stuff. So. That was a whole other crazy part of this because of the language barrier there. There wasn't able to people were able to explain it to us as well, and so there was a kind of a few days lag. Where we're like, "This is bad, but how bad is it?" Yeah, you know. That. And are you? Do you have cell phones? I mean, can you call your parents and tell them what's going on? Or? Yeah. So David, we don't have cell phones. It was traveling without a cell phone, which is kind of funny to think. But 2007 wasn't that long ago, but or 2000 early 2008. Um, but yeah, no, no cell phones. We had Skype, so he went and made a Skype phone call to my mm-hmm. mom, called home and said, here's where we are, this. Um, And that kind of brings to the next phase of what happened, which is my mother being an amazing person she is, um, you know, mama bear hops on a plane immediately to come uh, fly over to, you know, look after me. But it still took her about four or five days to get over to where I was just with the travel and the time change and all that sort of stuff. So next morning I was from this hut, I was taken, you know, back of a pickup truck onto a boat, boat driven over to this other island, picked up there, taken to the Kosamui hospital. And then for the next eight days uh, I underwent surgery every day for the next eight days of them cleaning the wounds uh, and all this sorts of stuff and uh, kind of to paint the picture I would come out in the ICU every day and wake up and there was literally a cat running around my bed in the ICU Um, so it wasn't (laughs) they they couldn't just get you directly to Bangkok no so that was a thing obviously that's what we wanted but um, you know one of the things again wouldn't have known about burns whatever but your body is just in such a fragile place that flying is pretty tough on your body so of course immediately we were like, how do we get back to the United States? How do we this? And they were like, there's not a chance. You're going to be in Thailand for a couple of months. Um, so on the eighth day, my mom finally convinced them to fly me one hour to Bangkok, um, which in my mind at the time, although I was in so much pain, I was like, how could being in a plane be any different than being in this hospital bed or whatever? Mm-hmm. But they were 100% right, which was just flying one hour was the absolute limit. I mean, it just wrecked me. I was already in such a bad place. And by the time I was in Bangkok, it was just a pretty grim scene. Mm-hmm. But that said, you know, Bangkok actually has amazing medical facilities, you know, some of the best in the world, medical tourism and all this sort of stuff. So by the eighth day, when I actually did arrive to Bangkok, um, I was, you know, really well taken care of, I think, you know, from that st- from that point on. But it still was, you know, a couple of months in that hospital in Bangkok, you know, without taking a step, without walking. You know, a couple not, months. Yeah, I wow. think. And they just have your legs bandaged, like dressed, and they're just changing the dressing. Exactly, dressed and bandaged. And, you know, the doctor would come in, so we didn't need any more surgeries by the time I was there. But they'd be like, oh, we come in. And again, I hadn't hadn't taken a step. And they'd come in, you know, every few days and change the bandages. And more than anything, my mom just kind of sat by my bedside and looked after me. And uh, yeah, until I could. And even when I left to go back to the United States, I was, uh, I was, um, you know, 
in a wheelchair, carried onto the plane, carried off the plane. I still hadn't taken a single step, even by the time I got back home. You know, and many, what was many the what was the diagnosis in terms of like long term prognosis? Yeah, I mean that's what was really scary, and that you know it's scary to look back at, but also I look at it as a as a strangely a, a bittersweet you know turning point in my own life. Um, you know, like I said, some of these horrible things can happen, but can also lead you into a different path that you never expected. Um, you know, for me, they had said to me, they said you know, you may never walk again, at least not normally, um, you know, and because a lot of that had to do with the severeness of the burns over my joints. So knee joints, ankle joints, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of stuff, you know, probably going to be regain the ability to be on my feet to some capacity, but with the scar tissue that can happen with these severe burns, um, you know, you really can lose a lot of mobility in that, you know, having been an athlete my whole life, being told that at 22 years old is, I mean, being told that at any age would be horrible, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm just, my whole life I've been had in front of me and being told that was awful. And so, you know, my mother, as she's sitting by my bedside, you know, she admits now she was more or less just placating me but she was just trying to keep me positive what are we going to do next how are we going to beat this thing you know Mm -hmm. stuff like that just kind of trying to pet me up and we stumbled on this idea of, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to complete a triathlon. It wasn't, mm-hmm. I'd never raced triathlon before. Obviously, I've been a swimmer, soccer player in high school, swimmer in college um, at a pretty high level. But, you know, I'd never done triathlon, something I knew a little bit about. But we, you know, in that hospital room just kind of started like, oh, what are the distances? You know, what does that really mean? Who are, where are the races? Yeah, you know? just something to hang your hat on to totally. give you a little bit of hope and you know, kind of like forward trip. A yeah, bit. absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, obviously... You embody this for sure in your your whole story, but you know, being able to set those goals, incremental or whatnot, is uh, is really powerful. So for me, you know, I set this goal one day I want to complete a triathlon, but then that broke down into small things. You know, after being you know carried off, you know, the plane in a wheelchair in my house back in Portland in my mom's house, it was literally sitting in the wheelchair. My mom put you know our kitchen chair two feet away from me, and she said, "All right, you wanted to complete a triathlon, great." But your goal today is to get out of that wheelchair you're sitting in and move yourself to the chair that's two feet away, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's that process of having that big goal out there, but also those incremental steps along the way, which, you know, for me was was challenging and powerful and tested every inch of me. But in the end, really, you know, led to a beautiful outcome, which was, you know, 18 months after uh, the accident. I had moved to Chicago and started doing what I thought I would be doing for a while, which is I started trading commodities there. Um, and uh, about a year after the accident, I finally started to be able to, to actually train again, you know, be on my feet, jogging a little bit, joined a gym while I was working, that sort of stuff. And I signed up for the Chicago triathlon. And how long, how long after the accident before you could get up out of the wheelchair and walk around? It was, you know, th- three months until I could move around a little bit. It mm-hmm. was another couple months until I felt like I could, you know, be on my feet. But it was a full year of being in compression garments, not exposing my skin to the sun. My skin was so fragile that literally if you just tapped into a chair, I mean, lightly just bumped into something, it would be immediately opened up, cut, wound. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a very fragile situation. Did they have to do grafts or how does it, you yeah. know, the healing process? So often you have to have grafts. I'm not sure. For me, it was severe second degree, um, which doesn't always require grafts. And then third degree, uh, on my left foot where had I been in a Western hospital, it's possible I would have had some grafting there, but um, I didn't have any grafting. The the blessing and a curse of the injury I had is severe second degree means that it's pretty much as deep of a burn as possible, but your skin will still regenerate from there. Mm-hmm. But all the nerve ex- endings are fully exposed. Mm-hmm. So it's actually the p- most painful type of burn. Mm-hmm. Severe third degree, of course, is so bad that your skin will never regenerate, which is why you need grafts. But it also 
is less painful because it's burned beyond, beyond the, nerve the nerve endings. endings. Exactly. So it's kind of a blessing and a curse, if right. you will. So fortunately, I didn't have to have grafts. Um, and I don't know, I, I you know, I, I feel fortunate to have made a pretty remarkable recovery in terms of the scarring is, is not so bad. Obviously, I swim every day in my triathlon training, and it's certainly not the first thing someone would notice. I mean, you can see if you look closely at my mm-hmm. legs, and my left foot's still pretty red and banged up, but it's not, it's not the first thing someone would notice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, compared to what my legs looked like for that year, uh, I never thought it would, you know, be anything different than really Right, bad, I would imagine really there was quite a bit of atrophy too yeah i mean my legs coming out of there were the size of my wrists basically so you say when i got back on my feet well a few months later i was able to kind of walk around again but you know think about running think about doing a triathlon riding a bike and those things was pretty unfathomable you know in my mind it's funny you know me and my mom had a (laughs) funny enough had a lot of fun together through this pretty tragic process but i remember one day when i could start to walk around again i said to her i was like I think I could beat you in a race right now. Uh-huh. She's like, Colin, come on, a race? And I was like, yeah, like just down the block, like not far, but like, you know, she's like, really, you want to do a race right now? <laughs> she's like, we're not doing this. And I finally just kept at her. You got to race me down the block. You got to race me down the block. And in my mind, I was like, I should be fine. And we get outside and I'm, I'm jogging what would probably be like 15 minute per mile pace or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to go as hard as I possibly can go. And she's like just jogging around and she's kind of taunting me at this point. And one of our neighbors who of course knows about this injury who we were close to walks out their front door and sees my mom taunting me as we're running down the middle of the street. Got like, what's going on here? So That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that really punctuates the kind of extraordinary arc from that place, you know, 25% of your body covered in burns, you know barely able to walk to, you know, thinking you're running fast at a 15 mile, yeah, you know, yeah. 15 minute mile pace to kind of what happens next in this, you know, uh, introduction to professional triathlon. It's kind of, yeah, amazing, right? I mean, so, it's a crazy arc. I mean, the thing that happened that, like I said, I put the Chicago triathlon on the calendar cause I was living there in Chicago, but coincidentally at that time, and I'm not sure if it still is, but it was the largest triathlon race in terms of participation. I think there was about four or 5,000 participants <clears> in that <throat> race. And obviously I just signed up in the normal amateur field to compete. Um, and my goal was to finish. My goal was to get across the finish line and, certainly surprised the heck out of myself and many others when when i crossed the finish line i was had actually won the entire race rather than just yeah. you know so you won the that, entire amateur the division. amateur yeah, division yeah, yeah. amateur vision was exactly. your time faster than any of the pros um you know i haven't looked at i Come think on, maybe no i haven't yeah, yeah no, <laughs> it was uh it was right around two hours so that's you know yeah, usually yeah. kind of middle to back of the pack distance. the pro for olympic yeah. distance it was olympic distance so um but it's amazing you know it's funny and in uh, you know amateur triathlon, the ra- races start in waves, uh, as you obviously know, and particularly the Chicago triathlon, there's like 50 waves or something like that, mm-hmm. and so, so you have no really, idea you what know. place yeah, you yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just out there in my own head, just trying to tick this box, set this big goal for myself, and I'm pushing as hard as I can. And I trained, you know, once I could get my body going, I still took my, you know, swimming mentality into it. Of course, I worked hard to get fit, but I didn't really know how I stacked up against others. And so when I crossed the finish line, it wasn't until about three hours later until everyone else had processed and they processed the results that so we looked up and it was like oh you won this race like that's you're crazy the first. <laughs> and did you a- did you have your own tt bike or did you borrow one like yeah i had met a couple guys at uh the gym i had been training at this gym called east bank club in chicago and they had kind of you know brought me into the fold and said oh you got to try this bike so i did i had you know this guy lent me his bike and eventually sold mm-hmm. it to me um you know through some pro deal that he had had and you know i had a disc wheel on there so i had like a nice setup right. but like i didn't I didn't know anything. I didn't know why this bike is faster than the other bike. What arrow uh-huh. man? I didn't have like a dialed position. 
position perfectly, any of that stuff. It was just like I was fortunate to have some cool gear, but right. I wasn't out there like, oh, at first I couldn't afford to like just go buy some nice bike, you know. So, uh-huh. yeah, I did have a, a bike, you know, from from some of those guys helped me out. But, uh, yeah. And and you did you ever run track? Like, no. It, like, so you played soccer. So yeah. that probably already made, like. Because first, just to like lay the foundation, like swimmers are terrible runners. Yes, usually like, they just can't run. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean. But it, since you played soccer, I would imagine you already had, you know, aptitude there yeah. that maybe a lot of swimmers don't have. Yeah, I mean, I so at the end of high school, I was recruited Division One for both swimming and soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And you know, Division One sports being what they are and so intense, you kind of had to can't do both. So I chose swimming over soccer. Um, but I had been playing soccer at a pretty high level and. Uh, it is true. The athleticism of swimmers is is not world renowned. It was a fun, <laughs> a very a, specific. A, a funny skill. aside: a kid named Alex Riggi uh, came onto the Yale swim team my freshman year, uh, and he eventually broke the American record in the hundred freestyle. You know, eighteen or fifty freestyle, eighteen mm-hmm. seven in the fifty free. You know, forty point in the hundred. You know that you know what that means. Crazy, uh, stupid, that's fast. Cra- I can't yeah. even relate to forty point <laughs> yeah. in the hundred free. Um, and so he was a freshman when I was a senior, and a couple of my buddies that I grew up with came out and were visiting. My, this is my senior year, and we were playing basketball in the spring. And they're like, we're playing just with the swim team plus my you know, childhood friends. And they're better than pretty much anyone out there. And these guys aren't athletes. They're just normal guys. Yeah. And they're like, these guys are all like elite level athletes. I was like, yeah, that kid there's American record holder. This guy's this. And he's like, they're like, they're tripping over their own feet on the yeah. basketball court. <laughs> yeah, get them out of the water and it's a disaster. Yeah. So we always have fun. So yeah, I guess, you know, I had a little bit of that extra athleticism than that, the average swimmer I did, you know, growing up in uh, Oregon, there's such a prolific track scene, um, you know, with Nike being right there and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I grew up, you know, um, you know, Galen Rupp grew up in my neighborhood. I didn't mm-hmm. know him growing up, but you know, uh, you know, he was right there and there there's a lot of other guys up and coming kind of in that track scene. So, you know, through some of my coaches actually ran a couple of track workouts here and there for fun. But like I had never competed in running in any capacity, uh, you know. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. 
To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So this is an eye opener, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you you figure out you won this race, and then then what? Are you like, holy shit? Like, so you yeah, know, just re reconfigure how you're going to live your life. Like, what uh, kind of, next? you know, what happened next was uh, a fortuitous turn of events that um, really is is remarkable. Um, you know, I had you know gotten to know some people in Chicago, friends of mine, uh, and one guy who I got pretty close with him and his family was a guy named Brian Gelber, who's uh, you know a big you know pretty world renowned trader you know, has a big trading firm in Chicago called Gelber Group and you know he he was he actually was at a barbecue at his house coincidentally the same day I did this race a family barbecue I think it was over you know summer barbecue and he had been asking me oh what happened today and oh well I won the Chicago triathlon today uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so I wasn't working for him I was working for a different trading firm at the time um, but you know not long after that it's like you said I'm sort of reconfiguring my life and you know he said you know hey it's, it's not a lucrative path but if you're passionate passionate about that, you know, I'd love to come on and be your first sponsor and, you know, support you down this path to see what you can go to with this, whether that's an Olympics or being a professional athlete or, you know, whatever that means. You haven't even decided you want this as a career yet and you already have a sponsor. Well, I mean, I think it's funny because <laughs> the universe my, is conspiring. My to, whole like, life as a kid, there's no doubt. Of course, I wanted to be a professional athlete, you know, just growing up, I remember vividly watching you know, the 92 Barcelona Olympics being seven years old, Pablo Morales swimming. Mm-hmm. You probably remember those names from your Stanford days, yeah, right? I, Pablo yeah. and I swam together yeah, and exactly. went to law school together. Yeah, so, you know, that for me, that, you know, I was seven years old and thought of myself as a butterfly or more at that time, I obviously turned mm-hmm. into a breaststroker, but, you know, he was a legend to me, you know, in, in that in those that period of time. And, you know, I, the longest I can remember, I wanted this dream, but having this kind of turn of events, you know, 18 months before that, I was not walking. And then 18 months later, I'm someone saying, you can turn professional in this sport, you're good enough, and here's, you know, a little bit of financial backing to get you out of the gate. It was, uh, That's it, it was incredible. Um, and, you know, and for me, it was... Uh, you know, people down the path and even now have asked me, you know, do you regret that decision? Was that the right decision? Because there's no doubt there was some of the guys that I was sitting there on the trading desk with that, you know, seven, eight years in the future now, 
maybe I've made seven figure bonuses and stuff like that, but there's not a day in my life where I've <laughs> regretted that decision. It hasn't been, you know, financially glamorous, this path that I've had, but, you know, Brian Gelber has been a, a willing supporter for a very long time and including with this latest project, he's the primary supporter of that as well. So, I mean, I have such a debt of gratitude to him and his family for supporting me early That's on. That's amazing. I mean, what does he get out of this? <laughs> You know, Other than being like, you know, a benefactor, like yeah. a beautiful benefactor of your life and, and a mentor. Yeah, I mean, he's been an incredible mentor. I'm close with his family and, you know, they're they're very special people to me, you know, even outside of this this context. They're, you know, some of the more important special people in my life. And he has been, like you said, an amazing mentor to me. He, uh, interesting, you know, in his career, I don't want to speak for him too much here, but, you know, he was an amazing trader in his own right. Um and, you know, did very successful there. But the way he's run his firm now is that he doesn't trade anymore and hasn't traded for a very long time. But he fashions himself as a coach and a mentor for young traders mm-hmm. up and coming who, of course, work for him. Um, but there, you know, there's a sort of mentorship that he has built in there and a coaching philosophy. So him and I have had some amazing conversations over the years with certainly ups in my careers, but some major downs that I've had in my careers and setbacks and that sort of stuff. And, you know, he 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 made that relationship between high performance, whether that's in business, whether that's on the sport, you know, field of play, whether that's in, you know, parenting, many different mm-hmm. aspects, you know, really there's a lot of similar lessons. And so he's, you know, although, you know, he was never a professional athlete, you know, he was a, you know, he ran in high school and, you know, did some stuff like that. But, you know, really even from his business, you know, background mm-hmm. has been able to be a great mentor for me. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, God, I've appreciated that relationship so much in so many different ways. Yeah, I'm it's kind of like uh, Mark Holowesco and how he yeah. supports cycling and, and yeah. a couple triathletes. Yeah, well, exactly. You know? So, yeah, so certainly fortunate to, to have that role and you know he's taken a couple other people sort of on on that path uh, a female golfer and a couple musicians and things and mm-hmm. it's you know it's a, a way for him to you know follow some people and you know give back in that way which is which is fantastic you know so grateful for that so you're so now you have this new you know th- there's new new life ahead of you yeah right? you're going to be a pro triathlete exactly you, but are you still continuing to work as a trader or you no. just quit you quit you the know job? i quit my job like more or less the next day (laughs) (laughs) no not after i mean maybe a week once once uh mr gelber came on to you know offer my initial round of support um and i had been uh introduced to a guy named simon thompson who was the australian olympian for triathlon came 10th at the athens olympics uh this is 2009 so he had Mm -hmm. been five years since he had been in the olympics and he had said hey if you're looking for a squad of course we're it's we're into september in chicago yeah you're not going to want to train in chicago you know it's got to get out of there immediately um, if you want to train in any sort of serious capacity, especially over the winter time. Um, and he said, you know, my coach lives in Canberra, Australia, which is, you know, the capital of Australia in Lynn, not a place that not everyone visits on mm-hmm. the Australian circuit, but it's where their Olympic training center is, the Australian Institute mm-hmm. of Sport. And he said, if you want to come out, you know, we've got a squad of, you know, pros and top amateurs and stuff out here and, you know, move out to Australia. So in a matter of a couple weeks, I went from thinking I'm a commodities trader for the foreseeable future to winning the Chicago triathlon two weeks later I'm quit my job and I'm on a plane to go move to Australia for six That's months crazy yeah it was a certainly a, a wild turn of events and something that no no way I could have predicted at all uh-huh. um, and that began the path for me you know that was in like I said in 2009 and I've spent the last uh, you know six plus years now being you know on the professional triathlon circuit and 
fortunate enough to have, like I said before, raced in 25 countries now, six continents, you know, mm-hmm. lived several parts of the world, you know, as triathletes do, chase the endless summer a bit to training destinations and, you know, various places. And it's been a remarkable ride for sure. And and the goal, I would presume, was to make the Olympic team. Yeah. Right. And yeah. racing the ITU circuit, which yeah. I want to talk a little bit about. Yeah. So that's uh, obviously particularly in this country, when you say triathlon, I think most people gravitate towards Ironman or think of Ironman, uh, for sure. Um, But the ITU circuit, like you mentioned, was what I primarily focused on up until, you know, this year, basically, or I've switched more over to long course. But um, yeah, the ITU circuit's a little bit different than uh, non-drafting. So it's draft legal triathlon, um, which means the bike course is more like a Tour de France style cycling Mm -hmm. race where you're on road bikes and you're drafting one another. Draft legal. And it's, uh, it's, it's the one kind of uh, professional discipline in triathlon where swimming actually is really important. Yes, you know, for absolutely. the most part, swimming like whatever you yeah. can be a lousy swimmer and get away with it. Yeah, <laughs> but in ITU, uh, if you're not if you're not killing it on the swim, you're going to miss the first group on the bike and you're toast. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, and I think that's certainly part of the reason that I you know gravitated to this uh, you know L part of triathlon for a while, anyways. Which is you're absolutely right in Ironman. Um, you need to be a capable swimmer, but you can come down two, three, you know, five minutes behind the main group and you've got four and a half hours on your bike and a full marathon to make mm-hmm. up that distance. Yeah, it's, 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 it's negligible. Whereas in ITU, because the draft legal nature of the bikes, even if you're maybe 10 seconds down from the main swim pack, 20 guys right away from you and you're by yourself, I don't care how you're strong never, you are, you're, you're never, never catching up. Yeah. You're never bridging, you know, so 10 seconds ends up being, you know, a lifetime. And it's one of the beauties of ITU if you have a swimming background and certainly one of the biggest frustrations is it's it's unforgiving I mean there's certainly plenty of times where you have a good swim and it's great but there's also times and you know even good swimmers in the sport will probably reflect on this experience but you fly halfway around the world you have a bad swim for whatever reason you get knocked over the head at the first buoy you get off the group and before you know it you're five seconds off the back of the pack and you're never there and you you know the race is over before it even starts so it's it's brutal in that way for sure and and it's sort of like uh, I mean you're just redlining the entire time. Yeah. And it's there's a couple observations about about this that I think are interesting. The first is that you know for the most part in in a typical you know sort of conventional triathlon you have your race plan and the idea is kind of you know you're racing yourself stick to your plan you know execute the plan that you have for yourself. But in ITU you're really it's it's way more uh, sort of a fluid strategy where you're reacting to what's happening around you. You're observing how the, the peloton is behaving and you're yeah. trying to make decisions on the fly, right? And you have to kind of, you really are racing other people. You're not yeah. really racing yourself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so, you know, like you said, for Ironman or a non-drafting triathlon, it's about executing your plan. You know, there are other people out there and there's some tactics involved, but it's really a massive time trial. It's against you against the clock, getting yourself from start to finish as fast as possible possible but in itu it's really about it's more reactionary Super tactical. it's very tactical i mean there's times when it's full tilt the whole bike course but there's times when everyone makes the front pack for whatever reason the packs come together and, and the pace comes off or there's that might happen for a lap and then the next lap is full on you know mm-hmm. there's this kind of this toggle of up and down so it's a little bit of a different of training your body to be able to handle that red line handling those surges handling that you know throttling up throttling back you know all that sorts of stuff and then being able to run a, a darn fast 5 or 10k off of uh, off of that type of bike which yeah. presents its own challenges and for I think sure. yeah the other observation I had is that I think sort of maybe, you know, I don't know, 
eight, eight or nine years ago, 10 years ago, like if you were an incredible track athlete, like if you had mad running skills, yeah. you were going to be the guy at the, at the top. Like yeah. it, it kind of came down to guys that could just hammer on mm-hmm. the run. Um, but now I feel like it's matured to the point where um, even that's not good enough. Like you really have to be exceptional in all three disciplines. Yeah. There's no weak spots anymore. It really, it's remarkable. The you know even in the, like I said, six years that I've been involved with ITU, um, the it just seems like every year the depth is just growing and growing and growing. And it takes a complete athlete now to you know get the job done. It, like you said, it used to be if you could hang around in the swim, you could sit in on the bike a little bit. If you're a good runner, you know you you could dominate. But you know those days are gone. That the bike is so full on the is so fun if you're not doing all three at a pretty you know elite level you're mm-hmm. you're left behind pretty quickly so yeah it's uh it's an intense form of racing and it's uh exciting and fun and hard and all that yeah i mean <laughs> did you acclimate to that culture and what were some of the you know highlights for you of being on that circuit yeah i mean it, it's a it's a remarkable thing you know I, I really you know i had certainly had my ups and downs with it i had you know some great races and i had some absolutely horrible races i think it's interesting you don't see it so much in iron man you, you know it's just see people perform and even when they have an off day they're still kind of up there in the top five or top ten or something like that if you look you know kind of pour through itu results you know there's certainly a couple of guys like the brownlee brothers gomez some of mm-hmm. these guys who have consistently dominated the sport but you know for you know gwen jorgensen on the women's side right now is obviously doing that which is incredible to see uh from an american um but you know, you see a lot of guys, they might be on a podium one week and literally the next week they're 57th place. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not, there's so much parody in the level of racing that one thing doesn't go your way on the day. It's, it's not a matter of a yeah. one or two places. Like you're, you're, you're way you're back down. there. Yeah. yeah. So that was always hard for me. And like I said, I, I had, I had ups, I had downs on the circuit, but it is an amazing, uh, ex- you know, forget the racing for a second, but the entire lifestyle of it is, I think, really unique um, in that it's very international in scope. You know, even with Ironman, as it grows to being more international, it still is pretty U.S., North America focused, you know, particularly with the World Championships always being in Hawaii, which is an amazing tradition mm-hmm. in itself. And, you know, I, I love Ironman as well, It's it's it's, but it's just different. Whereas the ITU really requires you to, you know, be on, you know, all the different continents, race all around. But it's amazing because, you know, you do end up racing against a lot of the same guys. You know, each start list is limited to 75 guys maximum. Um, you know, and that all is dependent on points rankings and all this sort of stuff to, Which to is get on those start w- lists. completely, like, impossible to understand. It's not even worth like, talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't even begin to understand how that That would be a whole other two-hour two yeah, yeah. podcast to discuss how the point system works. That's a whole other thing. But, um, but no, yeah, so basically you've got 75 guys on these start lists and in all these different countries. And of course, on the day, like you said, it's this tactical type of racing um, that in some parts requires you to work together. But certainly it's a very intense, very competitive environment. You know, you and I grew up pool swimming. We're in your own little lane. Now imagine jumping off the blocks with 75 guys mm-hmm. that can all swim about the same well and go in front first turn buoy. It's just mm-hmm. a, a wrestling and punching match. You know, it's pretty Yeah, your intense. heart rate is through the roof from, from the first stroke yeah. all the way to the end of the race. Exactly. So that's, I mean, the racing itself becomes pretty intense, but it also is a great community and that's not just like within your own country but from an international level the amount of friends i've made you know on that circuit has been amazing we might be you know enemies on on the race course but you know pretty much the second you step off the race course there's a pretty remarkable community of people you know coaches athletes everything and it's it's incredible there's some of these people who you know maybe they're from the u.s or certainly from you know parts of australia or western europe where i've never seen them in their their hometown before Mm -hmm. but i've been to zimbabwe with them and valparaiso chile and you know japan 
Japan, you know, there's some of these places that you end up with these circuits. So you end up sort of being in these crazy traveling cultural environments uh, with this kind of traveling circuit of people, which uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing life experience from that perspective, for sure. And how does the nuts and bolts of that life work? Because there's so much travel. Yeah. And you're racing all the time. And this is your profession. Um, like, how does anybody make a living doing this if you're not like a Brownlee brother? You yeah. Know what I mean, like, it's so expensive to it sustain is. it. And, you know, I don't know what the, you know, is it prize money? Is it completely dependent on sponsor support? Like, what does yeah. it look like for like the journeyman yeah. ITU guy? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. And it, it, it's also different from country to country. You know, because it's an Olympic sport and this is the distance race at the Olympics, oh, there is some bodies. governing bodies right. that have some funding. Um, the U.S., uh, doesn't have nearly as much funding as countries like, you know, in Australia or some of the Western European countries, um, which is mostly in part because we have the NCAA system, which mm-hmm. is an incredible way to privatize Olympic sports, yeah. basically. <laughs> um, and there's certainly controversies about it, but, you know, scholarship, swimming, uh, track and field, all this, there's a reason that we've been really, you know, dominant in the Olympics and the world stage in those sports. And I think a lot of it's attributed to the mm-hmm. NCAA and the facilities. But triathlon, uh, not being an NCAA sport now is for women just in the very nascent phases of that. There's only about five schools maybe that have that. But for the most part, triathlon's not an NCAA sport. So similar to what I did and many other Americans, they'll take a scholarship path in either swimming or running and then come to triathlon later in life. Whereas, you know, certainly in Australia and some of these other countries, they'll start funding you through their national governing body, age 16, age mm-hmm. 17, mm-hmm. all the way through. So that's how some people make it work, certainly, is through the, the government funding. Um, and in the U.S., that does exist to some regard, but it's really kind of a small amount and really at the very, very top level of the sport. So when you're coming up, you know, those opportunities aren't necessarily available to you at all. Um, and yeah, the prize money, you know, if you can get it, isn't glamorous. And a lot of the races pay five, maybe 10 places deep. But like I said, it's easy to come, you know, 55th place too. And mm-hmm. that you've flown over to wherever Asia and you're not, you're not getting paid that day. So really having some strong sponsorships in place and support in that regard, you know, make it work. You know, for me, like I said, fortunate enough to, you know, have Brian Gelber uh, and his family step in and support me early on and throughout my career as, you know, well as some other sponsors that have come on board along the way um, that have made that made it possible that said it's always been you know month by month piece by piece it's you know it's never been you know it's it's not from a financial standpoint and I, you know, I haven't saved a penny there's not like mm-hmm. uh you know but for me it's always been about the journey about the adventure um and about you know living my passion and that's been enough reward for me right. um so just to be able to get to the next race i always felt you know grateful for that it wasn't mm-hmm. you know yeah and how how much do you think like your background as a swimmer informed your ability to kind of step into, you know, the professional athlete lifestyle and absorb the training in, you know, two new disciplines that you had very little experience with. Yeah, I mean, I think you know this a bit, which is swimming is a brutal sport from a training perspective. You know, we grow up as kids swimming, you know, twice a day, four or five hours a day, oftentimes, certainly six plus days a week. A lot of that has to do with you know, there's no uh, pounding against the ground in swimming. You're you're in a pool, so you're not overheating. You know, those types of things allow you to log a lot of hours in swimming compared mm-hmm. to some other sports. Um, and because of that, it's uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's the best environment. There's certainly <laughs> plenty to say about that. Yeah. Um, but it 
if you get through that and through a division one swim program or whatever, you've logged a lot of hours training cardiovascularly, anaerobically, aerobically, all that sorts of stuff. So I think that played a huge role in mm-hmm. terms of all of these things are, you know, they require a, some technique and there's a huge learning curve and many things I've learned and continue to improve on in my career. But having, you know, logged those hours, you know, as a kid in this one discipline, really, you know, has allowed you me to step in and know what it means like to train 25, 30 hours per week, log that time, be focused, you know, train two, three different sessions per day, recover, all that sorts of stuff. So I think that's huge. And and it's no surprise that you see other people coming from swimming backgrounds and stepping into the sport and having quite a bit of success, because I think there's something about that environment that really, you know, teaches you how to handle and absorb a lot of this. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that that was, it was, you know, even though there had been, you know, two decades between my swimming career and then getting back into being fit again, you know, that, that, that base is always there. And I think just the mental aspect of knowing, you know, knowing how to train, you know what I mean? And being comfortable with that level of discomfort and kind of what it takes, I think is, you know, is a good thing. And I'm actually surprised there aren't more swimmers that go into triathlon. Yeah. I mean, can't run, but like, I think with all of that training, it really is, you know, there's a leg up in terms of like understanding what it's going to take. For sure. For sure. And I, you know, you're seeing it more and more and, you know, in this country doing a better job of getting that pipeline developed. I think you're seeing more people who are triathletes you know the next phase of guys that are young you know yeah they're not coming, coming from up. another sport no they're, they're coming just, from they triathlon yeah, exactly. which is awesome <clears throat> to see and it's definitely raising the bar you know in this country um which is which is fantastic i love seeing that for mm-hmm. sure so you you train at at ais for a while and then at some point like you're training but then you're living all you lived out here in santa monica too training. yeah right? so this I, is all happening in the last couple of years <laughs> yeah. it's not like this is like some past <laughs> life like no, no. this is all between 2008 and now right? yeah you know, 2009 like, and now more or less. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I lived in Australia. Um, then I came back and did some time back in Portland, uh, with a former coach of mine and then, uh, for about a year. And then, uh, Siri Lindley, who I believe, you know, or yeah, I know Siri. Yeah, she, uh, you know, invited me for a spot on her team, which was a, an amazing opportunity. Is that when so, she was coaching out here? When she was coaching in Santa Monica. Uh-huh. So I got introduced to her and the spot kind of opened up on her, her squad, which she keeps pretty small and pretty tight. Uh, and at the time and still to this day, obviously she has some of the best athletes in the world, but it was kind of the felt certainly the who's who of triathlon when I was stepping in and this is only a, a year plus into my professional mm-hmm. career so before I know it um you know the the triathlete audience will respect respond better to this every random people to everyone else but you know Leanna Cave Miranda Carfrey's on there mm-hmm. Maggie Tashare Luke McKenzie you know these are some of the biggest best names in the sport multiple right. time world champions um you know I'm thrown into a training environment with them which was incredible so yeah right here in Santa Monica is where that started and then we were doing um <clears throat> And then we were doing, uh, you know, uh, their training camp was in Noosa, Australia in the right. wintertime. So basically splitting time so between there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So swimming at the Culver Plunge. Yep, yeah. exactly. And uh, a lot of uh, tempo running in Malibu Creek exactly. State Park. Right, right here I in your backyard. I would run into them. I probably saw you guys out yeah. there a couple of times. But, yeah. I mean, Siri's amazing because she's, first of all, she is she's really sweet mm. and she's incredibly positive and yes. she loves her athletes and she'll do anything for them. And she really is, you know, there to like support and uplift her athletes in every conceivable way possible. And she she goes so far as to when, when, when there are group rides with all of her athletes, 
she she's in the car like driving oh, yeah. you know on the ride the whole time not just like hey go on your ride and come back and tell me about it later like she Absolutely. is right there with I you I mean she's incredible in that way she's just she's so there like you said so positive shows up to the pool ride run with a smile on her face energetic joyful mm-hmm. um it's it's really remarkable to be in that environment every single day and like you said so many coaches are either coaching remotely or at least you know saying oh go on this ride I'll see you in three hours let me know how it went and she's literally there driving her car beside you mm-hmm. sometimes you you you'll turn over and she's like got the radio turned up full blast she's like come on get up that Uh hill get up to panga canyon or like you know one of these roads Uh out here and that um just an amazing yeah amazing from that standpoint so you know definitely a a special person and it was a gift for me at that point in my career to be in that group and in that environment you know in a lot of regards with her and also with you know what i learned from those other athletes yeah so that was was priceless what was what i was going to ask i mean what what did you learn from either siri or miranda or leanda or luke or these you know the 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 absolute creme de la creme of the sport. Yeah, I think, you know, the the biggest lesson for me, I would say, you know, it was an evolution, but definitely that Noosa training camp that I went to, which was in the winter. It was a three-month training camp in the winter of 2012, 2011-2012. Sorry, our winter there, summer. So summer in Australia. Um and not only was it all those people that we just mentioned, but a lot of other people, you know, top American athletes were over there at the time. Yeah, so a lot Greg, of people go and live there. Greg and Laura Bennett were there. Right. Melissa Hauschel, Tim O'Donnell was there. I mean, really the the Belinda Granger, you know, lots of the, some of the Did biggest you meet, names uh, in the sport. Dan McPherson. No, uh, he uh, Siri was living in his house at the oh, time, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Beck Keat, you know, Beck Keat uh, uh-huh. had just joined the squad. So I mean, just an amazing, you know, group of athletes. And I was a, uh, like I said, pretty pretty young and new to the sport, and so it was pretty amazing to be in this environment. And I think one yeah, of the you'd be like the youngest person, right? Yeah, I was young and definitely the least experienced at the time, and wide eyed, and just felt privileged to be there for sure, and just learning from all these great athletes. Um, but I really look at that time for me as one of the the best learning. Lessons lessons certainly in my life from from a lot of regards um you know i probably if i I had to pick pick a moment it was you know i spent uh, a few months i was actually living with leanda during this training camp you know as we split up housing and all sorts of stuff Mm -hmm. and so got to see her in action every single day not just you know at training sessions but at home and all that sort of stuff and at that time uh, to give perspective, she had already won two world championships mm-hmm. early on in ITU and ITU Longs, and then later on that year, she went and won seventy point three worlds and won Kona. So it was mm-hmm. you know, a massive year for her, and I was, you know, there through that whole time. And interestingly enough. I think actually some of this has led to what I'm doing with my life now with this mountaineering challenge. But it, uh, you know, I asked her one time, "What's your favorite victory that you've ever had?" And here's someone who's you know literally won every sport, every big race in the mm-hmm. sport and she said you know it was actually when i came second place at the uh, commonwealth games i said second place i mean you mean multiple time world champion i was actually asking you which world championship did you win the, like that you won the best you know she was like no for me it was amazing because you know she has uh, of british descent although she grew up in australia and it was uh, her family was there and when she had won some of these earlier championships, she hadn't been surrounded by, mm-hmm. you know, that many people, uh, you know, coaches, athletes, but different than having, you know, your true core family around there. Um, and that always stuck with me. That really stuck with me um, because, of course, I really, you know, admire her and still to this day as what she's done athletically. But I admire that she recognized that 
although winning is what we're trying to do as professional athletes, there's more to it. There's more to the balance of that and really understanding the weaving the fabric of our lives, uh, you know, through that. And, um, you know, certainly not, not long after that, I had been spending a lot of time away from Jenna, traveling so much. Um, and Jenna and I kind of sat down and I said, how, how can we do this together? Again, we don't have a lot of financial resources or anything like that, but we, you know, we made it work. And Jenna has been now with me, you know, doing this whole adventure and with me for the past four plus years and has been, you know, the cornerstone of building this new, new Beyond 7-2 project and doing that together. And that really has what has made the difference for me. You know, I have certainly performed better on the race course as a result of that, but also just the balance in my own life has mm. just been so much more meaningful when I've had successes and when I've had failures and to know that the, have the continuity of the person that I love and care about right there beside me through all of it has really, uh, you know, made a big difference. And so that was certainly a, a huge lesson from that phase of time in my life. Um, and I think the second one is, interestingly enough, was finding my limits a little bit um, and learning how to develop as an athlete. So, you know, most of the people that we've named were all Ironman athletes and I was racing ITU. And of course I was eager to train side by side with some of the best and greatest in the sport. And so I wanted to push every single workout and train super hard and all this sort of stuff. Ultimately I overtrained myself in this training camp. You know, Mm -hmm. I had a great three months and the rest of the year was probably my darkest year in the sport after that from, you know, my testosterone levels dropped to, you know, the level of a 90 year old man. Basically I had to take some time off Mm -hmm. from the sport to just let my body, you know, get back to whatever. And, you know, that's a hard lesson to learn, but also an important lesson to learn, I think of where are those limits and how do we do this sustainably? And as I looked back and reflected on that time, I realized that even some of those amazing athletes, I was like, well, why is he riding a little slower on this group ride today? Or why is he this? And those people who have 10, mm. 15, 20 years in the sport, they're savvy veterans. Like they, they know. know how they know that consistency is the king. Like winning every any one given, you know, workout or whatever is pretty inconsequential yeah, if you yeah, can't yeah. string it together, you know, week after week, day after day, all sorts of stuff like that. So learning that lesson, maybe learning that lesson the hard way, but learning that lesson was hugely valuable to me, not in the continue not only in the continuation of my triathlon career, but certainly with this next project and climbing all these mountains back to back and all this sort of stuff. It gets about consistency. It's not about one big summit day or one right. big push. It's about how do I stay healthy? How do I stay consistent six months straight, you know, and keep going day after day? And and I think that requires you to render your ego to be subservient at mm-hmm. times. And that requires a certain level of discipline. And, you know, I don't know what your swimming training was like, but like when I came up, which is, you know, I'm a lot older than you, but you know, the training philosophy was not as more is better. As it is now. It's like but I was more is Frank better, Keefe. <laughs> and you would just go in every single workout after warm up. Like you just you just killed it on yeah. every set, yeah. and like just go as hard as you can. It was never like okay, this set we're just going to work on technique, and you're going to back it down. I want to keep your heart rate under X. Like no, you just go hard. You go, and maybe it's because it isn't an impact thing. Like you can kind of do that, but I mean, I'm convinced looking back that I overtrained my entire swimming oh, career. I mean, I, I agree. Like I said, I just walked around like a zombie for like 10 years, you know, I I, I give love to Frank Keefe because like we talked about early on, he's an absolute legend of the sport, but he was obviously coming with a older school school. perspective. So my college career was pretty much defined by that same type of more is better, the long yards and all this and looking back. And then you just rest at the end and and pray that (laughs) the taper's going to work out. 
But in tri- when you're running and you're doing those different disciplines, that will catch up to you a lot more quickly. It absolutely and will. And that the other thing is, is, not work. is in swimming, as you know, we you know we're we're peaking once, maybe two times per year, really, with a full shave and taper. And in triathlon, and you you ask, how do you financially make it work? How do you make this stuff work? How do you get the the point system, all this sort of stuff? You got to race a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, on on the main peak of ITU, I was racing 10, 15 times per year in a six to eight nine month period. So oftentimes you're racing back to back weekends on different continents and all this sort of stuff full gas and so there's no time to just do a full taper you might have an a race that you're a little more focused on or this but it's being able to back up day in day out Mm -hmm. all this sorts of stuff and that when you're training that hard and racing that hard and whatever finding that balance and figuring out how to recover is is a challenge and it's i think everyone has different limits and processes you know with that so yeah interesting all right so so things are are progressing and maturing in your your burgeoning young you know professional triathlete career yeah so why why you know suddenly interrupt that and 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 embark on this left turn of an adventure yeah you know you know i think it's a it's a combination of things um uh the biggest you know moment that i can point to is at the the end of last year i had decided to start you know trying out what long course triathlon might might be like mm-hmm. you know half ironman ironman type of distance um and i signed up and did the uh rev three anderson half ironman um and i won that race um, oh, wow which you won was, the whole race yeah yeah oh, wow. which was which was great i mean a, a phenomenal day um very proud of proud of that achievement and of course jenna being there like she has been for me was there and it was an interesting moment because winning that race was a a big career breakthrough for me it felt great um but it was also an interesting moment um and even reflecting on some of the the stuff i said before about balance and other things in your life it was this is great but this path at least at the moment felt a little bit felt very personal i wouldn't take back a single day but it felt somewhat self-serving when you're a professional athlete you know your sponsors are happy for you and that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff and you know if you feel good about that your family your coach yourself you know that's all great but there's not a huge larger impact that you can have in the world you know with that and so jenna and i kind of put our heads together and said you know i I certainly want to continue to push my body as hard as i can i certainly love being an endurance athlete and will i continue to be a professional triathlete after this project you know possibly for sure um but we were wondering I wonder if there's something we can do with this level of athleticism right now that has a much greater impact than in my own personal success or failure. And that's really where Beyond 7-2 was born from. You know, for me, with the the health and nutrition background of my family and some coaching I've done and mentoring with kids, uh, you know, the childhood obesity epidemic for me is, you know, a a tragedy. Uh, And I know that on your podcast, you've had various other people supporting that cause and yourself Mm -hmm. proponent of that. You know, it's it's really hard, you know, to see that, that, that health issues that we're having in our country not only with youth but all the way up through all the different you know ages you know kids turn into adults and so with this project our our aim really is yeah the goal is to set a world record sure but that's not the even the primary goal of this project the goal of this project is to build a platform where we can uh inspire and encourage you know people young people to get outside be active be healthy um we've partnered with an organization called the alliance for a healthier generation and our goal is to raise a million dollars uh for them so part of this campaign is a fundraising campaign for us um you know corporate sponsorship is taking care of my expedition expenses so when people are mm-hmm. uh donating uh to this cause uh it's going 100 percent to kids 100 percent to those programs um and so with this with the media attention that comes from attempting and setting a world record the visual component of all all of this um, really it's, it's about uh, inspiration and inspiring and raising awareness and raising funds uh, for this you know to me which is a really really important cause that's close to my heart and I think a lot of that has to do with 
I was I was from that regard, from a health regard, I was fortunate. You know, I like you said, joking around, born this hippity dippity organic, you know, family, and you know, I even poked my own fun at that through most of my childhood. But well, then, yeah, you rebelled by going to an Ivy League school exactly. and becoming a traitor. <laughs> exactly, you know, it's like the ultimate rebellion <laughs> for somebody who grows up on a commune. Exactly, and so you know, coming back, coming back around to that in, in my, you know, young adult life and realizing like, wow, like I was really fortunate. I was fortunate that someone was cooking me, you know, kale salad and rice and beans and whole foods growing up. Um, and I was just what I was accustomed to and took it for granted in some regards and realizing that so much of, you know, this problem, there's, it's a very complex issue of childhood obesity and there's many different facets to it. But certainly one of that, one of those things is, is access and education around those things Mm -hmm. and just knowing how to eat healthier and having access to those things. So, you know, obviously my project is just one drop in the bucket of trying to help, you know, with this problem, but hopefully through this, we can, you know, help and inspire and educate and, you know, raise awareness around, you know, healthy eating habits and inspire some youth to, you know, continue in that direction. Yeah, well, you know, there are a few more worthy causes. You know, this is the future of our planet, right? And when you see kids, you know, having, uh, you know, issues with obesity at such a young age and it's become such a, you know, a prolific problem, um, I think right now uh, 70, maybe you know, maybe you're boned up on the stats more than me. I mean, 70% of Americans are obese or overweight. I think childhood obesity rates are on the rise and accelerating at a ridiculous rate. And it is multifaceted because... Uh, it's an issue of parental education. It's an issue of convenience. It's an issue of access. It's a, it's a socioeconomic issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's also an issue of interest and focus. You know, when kids are staring at their phones or at their tablets and they go to school and they eat a crappy school lunch and yep. they just want to play video games and like go to the mall and the movies and eat at the food court, like, of course, they're going to be obese. So you have to change the environment, you have to educate, and you have to inspire kids to, you know, be more interested in things beyond the tablet, yeah, you know, oh, beyond the screen. And, 100%. and you have to attack that from all different sides. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. (laughs) 
so much of our project, like it said, you say you're out raising awareness to inspire kids and, you know, try to combat the childhood obesity epidemic. And immediately people go to, of course, that's on the groundwork with kids, which a lot of it is that. But you're 100 percent right, which is about needing that buy in from all the stakeholders. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's about, you know, getting buy in from school administrations. It's about educating the parents as well. It's about getting, you know, big businesses, the food and beverage, you know, administration, all that sort of stuff to make certain changes. And that it's a whole systematic, you know, change. And I think that the organization we partner with, the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, does really well. We did. We vetted a number of organizations and really yeah, felt good ask, about like, this why one. The, why these guys? Like, yeah, what are they doing? Um, so they were founded by the Clinton Foundation, the American Heart Association, originally. Not long after uh, President Clinton had you know some heart problems and kind of in his own life realized, hey, mm-hmm. this is a problem here, and dedicated some resources to that. Kind of incubated it. Uh, in 2005 at the Clinton Foundation. Now it's its own thriving 501c3. It's on its own. Um, And they uh, basically... Um, you know, built this program out. And now that they're impacting, uh, you know, 20 million kids nationwide, they're in 29,000 schools um, with their curriculums. And they're doing, you know, kind of a a three-layered approach, uh, which I think is really positive. One is called their Healthy In-School Time, which is getting into schools. And like I said, getting that buy-in from the school administration, you know, changing the food, the food lunches, Mm -hmm. um, getting the kids more active and healthy, PE class, all all that sorts of stuff. Then they have their Healthy Out-of-School Time, um, which is basically getting boys and girls clubs after school programs engaged in keeping their kids there because you're only in school you're in school a lot but you know after the hours of 2 p.m and when you go home to when you wake up in the morning there's a lot of also downtime so mm-hmm. maybe you're healthy in school all of a sudden but you know what are you doing after school like you said are you sitting down in front of that tablet are you playing right. video games or that or is there engage- engagement in that way so they're really ramping that up um, which is great and then the third level which uh, on on the outset might not seem you know like a perfect match but for me it's actually one of the more powerful things they do which is because of president clinton's involvement and because of some of the high high up people that they have involved, they've been able to be a stakeholder at the negotiation with some of the food and beverage companies. Last year, you know, they made a partnership with, uh, you know, McDonald's, Mm -hmm. which sounds crazy, a childhood obesity company and McDonald's partnering. But what they did is they convinced McDonald's to take uh, French fries out of their Happy Meals and replace it with, you know, apple slices. And that's sweeping change in terms of maybe that's not the end result, the game ending complete change, but that that actually has impact. That's, you know, that's millions and millions. I mean, of course, we wish that families weren't getting buying the Happy Meal in the first yeah. place, perhaps. But, you know, to be able to be a stakeholder and at least have some say at some of those tables, I think, you know, is really powerful. Uh, you know, so I'm really, you know, proud to be, uh, you know, sup- all of our efforts have been supporting this organization. Um, and then they have a foundation you know, they actually were were started all their nationwide, but in Portland, Oregon. So they have some roots uh, in Portland as well. So, you know, that feels good to be starting to to support them. So yeah, all of the funds we raise for this goes directly to them and they're a program that doesn't have very high overhead costs. That was important to us. So pretty much dollar for dollar, pretty much all is going straight to the kids, straight to programs. Yeah, that's great. Very good about that. That's great. So, and so you just uh, basically, you know, research this, found these guys, reached out, and just developed yeah, a relationship exactly. with them. And we said, we want to do this project. And we you know, we were very clear for ourselves that in terms of, of course, climbing all of these mountains, going to the North and South Pole is not an inexpensive thing to do. Um, and we didn't, our, our point is to be raising money, you know, towards the combating childhood obesity epidemic. So we very, you know, clearly, you know, drew a distinction of getting sponsors on board who are supporting the, you know, the cost of the project itself. Of course, you know, I'm not getting paid myself anything to do this, but there's just operating expenses to doing this. So we mm-hmm. ourselves, Beyond 7-2, is its own 501c3 nonprofit, and we've had some great, you know, support. So uh, Nike Foundation has been one of our largest supporters. So, you know, it's huge, cool. huge to have them on board. Um, like I said, Brian Gelber, who has uh, been through my triathlon 
one career has been a you know primary supporter. We've got Columbia on board, Mountain Hardware, Sorel, Prana, um, Moose Jaw, uh, retailer out of the Midwest. You know, we've got some some really great brands uh, in support of us, and we feel you know great about having That's that great. support. I mean, I can't imagine what the uh, ultimate price tag is. Yeah, <laughs> it's, this thing. it's, it's got to be really high. It's high. It's not. It's not, not something you're going to do on your own. No, it's not. You know? Not a check that I can write out of my f- personal must, bank account. I would imagine you feel that pressure, though. Like, wow, you know, there's a lot of for sure. You know, there's a lot of that pressure to me. It's this. there's a it's a it's a big it's a big effort to do, and it's uh, a big, but it's also I think it goes to show that you know to have someone you know like a Nike, you know, really, really put their, their money and resources behind a project like this shows that it's a, a unique project and a unique platform. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the media attention is starting to, you know, gain. We've got, uh, you know, you're, you're here, I'm on your podcast, which is great. And that's uh, the biggest, that's thing, the biggest one there. That's the so that's, important so thing. that's bigger than anything, but <laughs> we, uh, we've got, uh, you know, men's journal just came out, uh, followed me around for three or four days oh, with the journalists cool. and they're writing uh-huh. a feature on that should come out in March and a few other things as well as a documentarian looking after this. And so hopefully, we, you know, as we, to me, you know, the, the, the million that we're hoping to raise is, is a huge goal and hopefully we can get there. You know, you can go on our website, hit on the donate button. Um, that's the, probably the easiest way to do that on beyond72.com. But also, you know, the awareness piece, there's, you know, it's not as easy to quantify, but, you know, I've been out uh, speaking in schools uh, in, the, in the lead up to this. And that's been honestly, after a year of planning and trying to get sponsors on board and kind of the boardroom hustle, if you will, um, which has been an interesting phase of this project. It's actually amazing to be turning the phase on that go. The expedition is funded we have great support mm-hmm. and now it's time to like do the work and so you know i've been in these elementary schools giving these speeches about what i'm doing talking about goal setting talking about you know eating healthy healthy habits and that's been amazing the reception from the kids the curiosity i've been bringing in a lot of my climbing gear my big everest down suit and i have mm-hmm. the kids try it on and they're laughing they can't believe you know these big boots and these mittens and all that sort of stuff and they're just you know the kids are amazing they really it's it's so fun to be able to interact and give back in that way Way, and it's something that's really, like I said, the fabric of the whole reason behind doing this mm-hmm. project. And for us, the project doesn't end. When I get back in June, hopefully I'm back in June having set a new world record, and that that would be amazing. It'd be certainly a cherry on top of this. But you know, both Jenna and myself are dedicated. And that's not like for this, this Beyond 7-2 ends on, you know, June 15th when I set or don't set the record, you know, Beyond 7-2 continues on for that. Certainly through the remainder of 2016, you know, we're committed to, you know, doing way more of that outreach through the Mm -hmm. Nike Foundation, through some other, you know, folks who are, you know, supporters of ours have kind of put us into some networks where we can really drive impact on the ground and continue those fundraising efforts. And then hopefully, I don't know what the the next, next thing is, but hopefully, you know, we can continue on in this vein and continue to, you know, build on this progress that we have from here. So it's not not just a one-off for us in any way it's interesting that you chose to um to you know embark on this mountaineering adventure because as a professional triathlete the obvious like if you're grappling with like how can i do this in a more meaningful way and give back the more obvious choice would to do would would be to do like an iron Iron cowboy kind of thing you know or like come up with some crazy triathlon i'm gonna go all the way around the world you know swim bike run or something like that but relate it to those three disciplines and for you to just put all of that aside and go, no, I'm actually going to do something completely different. Yeah. You know, 
first of all, aside, I, my hat is off to the Iron Cowboy. If you're out there listening or what, like, mad respect. I listened Insane. to the, I listened to the Rich Roll podcast about the Iron Cowboy. Uh-huh. First of all, it's amazing working with the Jamie Oliver Foundation, Childhood Obesity as well. Fantastic work with that. But just on a personal level, I think, Rich, you said at the end of that podcast, you said, I've got mad respect for this guy, but I have a little bit of doubt. You've done five Ironmans right. back to back. And you're like, I hope he does it, but just the logistics and the this, like, is this going to pull it off? And I remember, I remember listening to that and thinking, like, I'm the same. I'm not a, I'm not a hater. I wanted him to succeed, but I kind of had those doubts in the back of my mind. I was like, man, this is a tough challenge. So to accomplish that, mad respect wherever you are out there, my friend yeah, James. Insane. That is insane. That was a, such a cool project and just the impact and the passion and mission behind it. And there's so much that I can relate to in that own story. You know, we've been playing this project before the Iron Cowboy did his thing this summer, but, you know, just having his wife along for the ride and all that sort of stuff it's really you know you, you can i can really relate to that in my own life and it's a it was an amazing accomplishment to witness so, yeah, was, and uh, being a triathlete and being an iron man my own self uh, yeah. it's just it's un- unreal so res- and mad this, respect this you know, of course you know <laughs> yeah. nothing but crazy respect yeah. for james yeah uh, and 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 perhaps the same concerns apply to your own thing like i don't have a point of context or reference for it because i'm not a mountaineer and i don't yeah. know what that entails but it's it's analogous in many ways and and perhaps maybe the most you know uh, relatable one is the fact that a you're going to be meeting unforeseen obstacles that will have unforeseen ramifications you're on a a really t- pretty tight timeline with not mm-hmm. that much room for error yep. and a lot of things that are outside of your control and you know James came up against crazy weather conditions so he had to move things inside but that's very different from being at base camp in you know at Everest and saying well we're just not going to we just can't do anything you know until it clears and for sure. you know what i mean like so many things you can't control there's things i can't control and i try to you know in my visualizations, meditations, just thinking about this, try to focus on what I can control and making sure I've dotted at least all those I's and crossed those T's as best as I can and, and what will be will be and prepared myself as best as possible for for this mission. Um, and, you know, like, you, you know, your original question was why why this and not something in the swimming, biking and running space? Um, you know, I think the answer is twofold, which is, you know, for me, I've always dreamed of climbing these mountains. Mountaineering has always been a passion for me, so it's not a complete divergence from something mm-hmm. I've never done. You know, you wouldn't embark on this, which have its inherent risks, if you didn't have the mountaineering expertise and knowledge to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's a background of mine. But the other thing is, is that triathlon is a professional sport. You know, I've been a professional athlete at that. But for me, I'm not a professional climber. I'm not a professional mountaineer. And so much of this project is about having a universal message around this, which is saying, you know, I'm not shying away from the fact that I, you know, a pretty have been a top level athlete, but I haven't been a mm-hmm. top level mountaineer. And so, so much of this project is not, hey, Colin's doing this unattainable thing that no one else can do. Right. It's like, hey, I've set myself a big goal and it's a big goal in a place that like I have some sort of comfort in, but I'm not an expert. I'm not Conrad Anchor. I'm not, you know, Jimmy Chan or these guys who are just insane mountaineers, right? I'm a good, strong, competent mountaineer, but I'm not a professional mountaineer. Right. And so it's about trying to tie in a universal thread to whoever out there, which is, hey, I'm doing this, but can you run a local 5K? Can If you're a kid, can you ride your bike to school? Uh-huh. Can you, you can you go for a walk? Can you take your dog out, run around the block? You know, that sort of stuff to try to make this less of, oh, Colin's out doing this crazy extreme thing that no one can do, but really to tie in on a, in a universal way of, uh, you know, messaging around this and, you know, what we can do to sort of inspire, you know, everyone. So, And how is that, how, how do you prepare physically 
for this? Like, how does you you know yeah. you're look you're you, you know how to train for triathlons, you know how to train for swimming. How do you then take that knowledge base and and tweak it to to do the specific preparation that's required for tackling? Yeah, this? for sure. You know, um, well, one of the big things was I switched to long course triathlon this year, which just suits mm-hmm. from an aerobic standpoint a lot better. So I can did my first Ironman this year, raced a bunch of seventy point threes, um, which the training for that rather than the ITU training is. Uh, more conducive to this because really a lot of it is just a big aerobic challenge obviously Mm -hmm. um but then working with my coach greg mueller um you know working in throughout the triathlon year even though i was still racing triathlon through august when i raced ironman japan i you know was doing strength stuff i was doing stuff in the mountains strength specific you know mountaineering stuff and then after in august august 23rd was my last race of the year which was ironman japan I flew straight from there to Nepal to start a six-week expedition to climb Manaslu, which is the sixth tallest mount or eighth tallest mountain in the world at 26,800 feet, very similar in scope to an Everest expedition. Mm-hmm. So that was by design, which was to be super tired coming off an Ironman and then go see if you can climb one of the biggest, baddest mountains in the world backing up of that because, of course, I'm going to need to climb Everest fatigued. You know, I'm not in yeah. a perfectly dialed, ready to go state. Everybody but, else know. shows up there. Their whole life has been oriented around that one climb, exactly. and you're coming off all these other climbs. And exactly, you know, what are the what are the kind of like things that you have to deal with when you're dealing with going up and down at such high altitudes all the time on a repetitive basis? Yeah, I mean, it, it's got its own challenges from you know just the way weight bearing and strength is a lot different uh, in in mountaineering than it would be running of course the uphills the downhills carrying weight on your back on the poles you're dragging a hundred pound sled you know that's just like engaging your body and core in a very different way so being able to do a lot of strength training to prepare for that um, is is big for sure and just getting my body accustomed to that it's been a, a little bit of a strange year which is um, you know in triathlon you want to be very lean for the mm-hmm. most part you know Ironman Japan is arguably the hilliest course in the entire world this year so you're going up all these hills running biking up these hills you want to be super lean whereas a mountaineer a lot of people have looked at me and said you're pretty lean to be going to this cold of places so to have that sort of balance and trying to you know figure out my body composition and all I mean, that you look pretty been, big right now you don't yeah. you don't look like an ironman triathlete like you look like you've been in the weight room yeah so I, exactly yeah. so as after august after august my la- that ironman i went to nepal for six weeks and then it's pretty much been full mountaineering weight room type of focused training of course there's still the, co- the cardio component but there's been a drastic shift from doing the swimming biking running which is definitely the foundation of my strength and ability mm-hmm. but there's been some yeah like i've been lifting my body for the first time since my swimming career which is feel upper body which just feels different you know just like there was a time when i feel like i could throw it down in the weight room but now yeah. i actually coming after triathlon it's like well i haven't done that pull down or pull ups yeah. or that sort of stuff in a, in a long time so it's been kind of good to get back to that and get some of that strength dialed in in preparation for this and what about the mental training like how are you preparing for you know sort of those 10 days in and out when you're doing the you know the pole expedition yeah you know the biggest thing for me is uh meditation actually uh you know meditation it was introduced to me um in 2010 i guess 2011 in a pretty meaningful way uh a woman a friend of mine came and watched one of my races and she doesn't really have much of a sporting background it's a wonderful friend of mine from turkey but <clears throat> not a big sports watcher or whatever thing she was like this is very a mental thing you're doing and i was like mm-hmm. yeah it is and she's like you know i think that meditation would be very helpful uh for you and it's something of course with 
the hippity parents that I grew up around. I've, you know, it's been in my consciousness, but not something I've ever practiced or really done. Um, and she rec- she said, well, there's this thing called a 10-day silent meditation retreat, Vipassana silent meditation retreat. Ah. I think you should, you know, try this out. And so that year... Uh, like, I can't take 10 days off of training. <laughs> and so I had my, I basically have two weeks of off-season that I give myself in December of every year, more or less. It's the pretty much the duration of my off-season for the most part. And at the end of that year, which was 2011, um, I m- most of the athletes thought I was crazy. They were like, "We're gonna like party and hang out for like the only two weeks mm-hmm. we can do that this year." And I was like, "Oh, I'm going to this place where I'm gonna be silent for ten days. I can't read. I can't write. I'm meditating 17 hours per day. No one talks to me. No one looks at me. And you can't really eat very much food. You can only eat a couple very small meals throughout the day." Um, and that was life changing for me. You know, it really was. It was, uh, like I said, uh, my, even my stepdad, he said, I don't think I've ever heard you be quiet for five minutes. He's like, maybe I should, he, he dropped me off at the, at the center in, in, a, in Washington State. And he said, should I just hang around for an hour or two until you realize this was a bad idea? <laughs> and then you can come back in the car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it really, it, so funny. it was challenging, but it is, it's completely changed my mental game for sure to have that. And I've gone back and not only done that one 10 day retreat, but I've done another 10 day retreat, uh, from complete silence after that and some shorter ones and how to brought that into a daily practice for myself. And, Interesting. you know, so much of that is it's funny because I went into it like, oh, this will be good for triathlon. And certainly it has been, and it's been good in my mental game preparation for the beyond seven, two mountaineering world record. Um, because there's that element, you know, in, in Vipassana, there's this part called the sittings of strong determination, which is three one-hour sessions throughout the full day of meditation. You sit there, and you're in this meditation hall, and they say to you, okay, sit in whatever position feels comfortable, cross-legged, kneeling, whatever. But once the hour starts, there's no moving your posture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no readjusting your back, stretching your hands, you know, any of this sorts of stuff. It's just sit there, and as the sensations through the body come up, sometimes those are positive, sometimes those are negative, but it's about just objectively being aware of those things and then saying, you know, this too will pass, this too will change, this is temporary. Um, And it's incredibly hard and incredibly challenging and painful at times, but to try to not have those cravings or aversions, you know, to the positive or the negative of that. And that, certainly in sports, as we, you know, push our bodies beyond what they want to be pushed, you mean your mind is telling you to stop long before it actually really needs to stop those alarm bells yeah. start ringing and so that's been powerful in that aspect but really it's been even more powerful in the the rest of just my day-to-day lives and you know my relationships with family and friends and all of that and giving me a perspective of just awareness and you know in the world and I we would say probably in in a subtle way has really led me to this path and going back to you saying it seems like in the middle of your triathlon career things are going really well you're taking this like massive divergent pivot and I think that you know, through meditation, through checking in with myself daily, it's allowed me to check in with sort of, you know, what's calling me and that awareness around that. And maybe it's not the most obvious path what I'm doing in the middle of this triathlon career to, you know, make this change. Mm-hmm. But I feel very called to do it. I very, very called towards the cause and the charitable aspects of doing this. And it's still pushing my body in a way that it's interesting and meaningful. And I'm excited about it. And to be able to work on this project with Jenna from an idea in our, you know, kitchen to a full formed, you know, funded project that has, you know, uh, you know, we're actually doing has just been the pathway of that has been an amazing journey. So succeed or fail with the record or what that I'm, I've no doubt that the, the journey is, is, is valuable and uh, so much of that 
certainly has come from the ability to check in with myself and meditate and really, you know, be aware of that. So that's been super powerful for me in, in my life in the last, you know, several few, few years. That's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful when you can, you can uh, merge something you're passionate about with something that has meaning beyond that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And a- as you kind of mentioned earlier, you know, tri- triathlon, any sport really is is such a self-oriented thing. And by its very definition, it has to be that way if you're going to perform at the highest level. So I think it's ballsy and cool <laughs> you like doing this. Yeah. And, uh, and that's interesting about meditation. I've had friends that have done uh, silent Vipassana meditation yeah. retreats before, not athlete friends, but mm-hmm. other friends. And, and for every single one of them, they said it's been the hardest thing they ever did, but completely transformative. Yeah. Is yeah. there one organization that oversees these retreats, or are there a variety of them? Well, for me, that's one of the, the things that's the most amazing about it. Um, it's completely um, just a passed down word to word, so there's no marketing around this. Uh, this guy named Gwenka, basically, who grew up in Burma and kind of spread this a lot of this teaching to the West, just kind of started doing these retreats. Um, and accepts no money for it. You, you literally can't pay even if you wanted to pay. Um, and all of the people working to facilitate the facilities as well as, you know, volunteer to cook the food and facilitate the stuff, the teaching that's going on, is completely on a 100% volunteer basis. Mm. Once you've completed 10 days, they will accept a donation from you if you feel like it, but there's absolutely no pressure to do that or whatever. So that started from one center in the United States. Now I think there's 250 of these around the world, and it's the thriving thing. I mean, to sign up for at least the one that's near my house, which is in Washington State uh, and on Alaska, Washington, kind of halfway between between Seattle and Portland, sometimes there's two, three, four, five month waiting list. There's just a slew of people and that's just word of mouth. Like I said, there's, they have a very small mellow website, but you'll never see like a poster or a flyer or an email about Mm -hmm. it or something like that. It's just completely word of mouth. And I think it speaks volumes about the realness and the power of that. And, you know, myself, I'm not, uh, you know, I guess I would consider myself in, in this regard, if you want to call that spiritual, but I'm definitely not traditionally religious person or something like that. And, um, there's absolutely no dogma there. You know, it's a very universal teaching of just kind of awareness and, and health and thoughtfulness Mm -hmm. and mindfulness, which has, you know, it's like if you're a Christian or a Muslim or, you know, you can practice this. It's not like this, Oh, you're choosing this like faith based thing. And for me, you know, that kind of dogma would have, you know, pushed me away from this pretty quickly. And so the, the acceptance of that, I think is powerful. And it's also not this situation where you're feeling like, okay, this is powerful, but I need to pay thousands of dollars to be here. And this, the guy teaching this, it's kind of a business too. Mm -hmm. And that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. There's, there's absolutely none of that. If you do Um, this, then you can get into the next one where they really teach you. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, so there's not that, which is to me, I mean, that's not me trying to knock other, you know, organizations or groups and there's certain realities of costs of things and stuff like that. But I do think that, you know, this, this Vipassana meditation really speaks pretty loudly that there's, you know, that much support for something like this that's thriving, that is like, in truth, the most nonprofit of nonprofit environments that I can possibly imagine. Like, there's not even a, there's not a development team or mm-hmm. a, any of, there's no one raising money. Like, afterwards, they're like, you know, if, hey, if you feel like it, you know, we could take donations. But like, if not, thank you for being here. And the people that are there at the facilities, the reason the facilities have been built is because of donations these a lot of these people start out with a, a donated plot of land and it starts in a one room right and so now these some of these places house 100 people or whatever and that's just been piece by piece built and added on to and that sort of stuff so it's pretty remarkable and like i said for me certainly on an emotional level was uh, life-changing as you know lifelong practice for me at this now so I then think. what is the what is the daily practice look like the daily practice for me is is more um you know 
they encourage two one-hour sittings per day, but I'll be honest, that's uh, <laughs> that's not happening. Um, I wish it, I wish it were in that's, some regard, but that's a pretty pretty serious uh, level of time. Um, so for me, I find that the mornings are the times when I have the most control over my schedule and my day, uh, and so I like to you know start days with a twenty or thirty minute you know meditation. Mm-hmm. There's there's moments where I feel like I can have more time and go longer, and certainly times when I can sit before bed and that sort of stuff. But I try to at least carve out that that regular piece in the morning mm-hmm. and. You know, if I'm being completely transparent, there's times when I'm better at it and there's times when, you know, I, I, I lose that. But it's something that I continue to check in with. And certainly as I've been building up the physical, not only the physical, but the mental preparation for this next challenge has been a, a huge element of that. Because I think the mental fortitude when I'm out in these cold, desolate places alone and that sort of stuff, it's going to be the mental game more than the physical mm-hmm. game. So I think that and continuing that practice through this project is is, is huge, is really it's important. Huge. Yeah. When you're out there alone, you know, on these 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 pole ventures, can you bring like can you like listen to your iPod? Can you like listen to audiobook? Like can <laughs> yeah. you do can you I have mean, any of those comforts or a, a, a few, you know, like obviously one of the cool things about the South Pole uh, makes it harder to sleep, but it's 24 hours of sunlight. Um so like I have a small little solar panel which is mostly there so that I can keep the stuff charged up so we can continue to send images and continue to mm-hmm. tell the story in real time through our, you know, sat phones and stuff like that. So the priority is not to have, uh, you know, TV shows on my phone and yeah, you know, no, all that sorts of stuff. And, you know, obviously I want to be connected to the project, but yeah, I'm going to have a book there with me or have, you know, my Kindle or something like right. that, you know, a few of those comforts to pass the time. And, you know, certainly, you know, I'm sure at times I'll listen to some music to get me pumped up, but of course you can't just plug your stuff in anywhere. So it's, you know, it's a, there's a limit on that, but there's a little bit, little bit of that that can happen. And of course, everything you have to carry with you too. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, you gotta, yeah, you got to think think pretty critically about it. But uh, you know, I allow I allow myself a few a few of those comforts out there for sure. Mm-hmm. And is there one thing that that scares you the most? Like, is there one thing that where you have like the fear button gets pushed? <sighs> I I. There, I don't know. I'm, I'm having a hard time putting that one into words. It's the second time you've asked me that, and uh, there's pieces. There's bits I know, and I'm pieces. I'm trying to get. I'm trying to. I know. I know. It's uh, it's good. It's good that you're asking that. It's well, like l- let me come at it from a different perspective. When you're preparing for this, obviously you've had to, even with your mountaineering experience and your experience as a professional athlete, um, I'm sure that there. Are, is a lot that you learned about these particular mountains or, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to get to these poles and probably found out a lot of stuff that you didn't really realize that maybe, maybe dawned on you. Oh man, you know, this is a little bit more involved than maybe I thought when I decided I was going to do this. Like, is there a blind spot in your experience perhaps, or something where, you know, you're going to have to, you know, really meet your maker in a way that you've never had to before. I think the biggest thing for me is in mountaineering, if you compare it to my endurance sporting background, which is you start an Ironman, you start a triathlon, you start a marathon or any sort of race, you might be having a bad day. And you know, we've all seen at Ironman someone throwing up on the side of the road or heat exhaustion or getting pulled off by an ambulance. But at the end of the day, you can put your hand up and you can say, all right, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to step off the course here. You know, it sucks. Wasn't what I wanted to do. But that in mountaineering, the commitment level is so much higher. You're days if not weeks away from real help um and so every step and everything you take further towards the top of that mountain is also taking you into a dangerous environment and that's very real um that's that part of it for me is 
is scary when I compare it to the risks that we take to endure in Ironman. If you look at that, it's a much more controlled environment where you can really push your body to the very absolute limit. And if you, you know, in some of these famous people like Apollo Newby Frazier collapsing at the Kona finish line and crawling across the line, I mean, these are amazing moments in the history of our sport. But also it's like, if something really went wrong, there also was like all of these people around. And mountaineering, you just don't have that. And you're responsible for making those decisions. So that that really scares me. Um, and the thing that's, you know, like I said, in a lot of years in the dreaming, I'm not blind to the risks of mountaineering. But the thing that really, you know, has struck me most recently on these regards is on this expedition I was just mentioning, Manaslu, where I went to climb just in Nepal. It's my first time climbing an 8,000-meter peak in Nepal. Um, and, you know, we got up pretty high on the mountain, the team I was climbing with, and we decided that on our for our last summit push that the avalanche conditions were just too extreme and we decided to turn around. So I actually mm-hmm. didn't summit that peak. Um, and several teams decided, about half the teams decided to make the same decision as us and half the teams decided to continue up the mountain. So it was kind of a split on the mountain. And there was certainly moments and times like, oh, did we make the wrong call? Do we make this, this? And several people did go on to summit that mountain. Um, but a man, an Austrian man named Zoltan, who, you know, we had known a bit from earlier down on the mountain on a different team, also went up there with his climbing partner and he died on the way back down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it wasn't somebody who I know really well, but it's somebody who a couple weeks before I was sitting around camp just having a chat to. And, you know, that puts it into perspective. Like it's, yeah. it's, the danger is real out there and it's, in, you know, you make one decision, you know, this can happen or you can thread the needle. Like all, a lot of those are people that did summit and I'm going, well, how they summited? We didn't summit. So you're always, you know, having that. So it's an interior battle, internal battle, excuse me, to, you know, make the right decisions out there. And, um, you know, death is certainly more present in your mind and the risks of that than ever. And I try to not dwell on that because I'm not trying to manifest that in my own, in my own space. And maybe that's why I have some challenge answering, you know, what am I most fearful about? But like, of course that is the, the, a big fear of mine and, and the cold, you know, not just the truly dying or whatever, but I've had a debilitating injury before and I feel so fortunate to have recovered from that. Um, but to be putting myself in an environment that quite frankly, does carry with it some risks that, you know, something could happen to my legs again, something could happen to my hands again, you know, all this sorts of stuff. And I'm willingly putting myself in that environment. Um, I'm not paralyzed by fear with it. If I thought it was so risky and it was just a dice roll, of course, it would be foolish to embark on this. So I think my level of experience allows me to take these risks in a reasonable way. But you know, anyone who's out there, anyone who's climbing, even the best climbers in the world are, you know, wavering between their own personal limits of what the challenges are to complete the objective and what's a reasonable amount of risk to to take on. And so, yeah, that scares me. And as much as the environment of having people engage in this project, obviously what I want is the people to be engaged in this project. You know, the school children I'm speaking before this are following me on their classroom blogs Mm -hmm. now and sending me little messages and all this sort of stuff. And that, to me, that makes the project so valuable. But does that add extra weight to your shoulders when you're up there on the summit day and it's a coin toss? Should we go up? Shouldn't we go up? Oh, wait, all these kids really also are, want yeah. to, you know, so it's not like, uh, should I break away from the Peloton or shouldn't I, you know, yeah. the, the, the stakes aren't even in the same universe. Yeah. You know, it, it truly is life or death. And those decisions that you, it's not like, are you going to have to make that decision? It's how many times are you going to be 
yeah. forced to make that decision along this path. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why I do really value, um, certainly Jenna, who I've mentioned a ton because she's the lifeblood of this project, but <clears throat> the conversations I've had with my family and stuff, you know, going into this, you know, I've had some pretty real and serious conversations about, you know, what that means and what are acceptable risks and what are not and really hammering home into my mind that they're all cheering for me. You know, they want me to succeed, but they your want mo- me to... Co- is your mom cool with everything? You know, she's 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 both. She's... <laughs> she's uh, been incredibly supportive as she is like i said i think i the way i described her with what she did for me in thailand and that there's nothing but a loving supportive mother um but she's also been involved really intimately in a lot of things that i've done in my life and mentoring and all sorts of stuff and she certainly has you know played that role you know through this trip but she's also said like all right you know i want to be the mom she said to me last week said i want to be the mom here you know Mm -hmm. i I don't want to be your advisor on this necessarily. She, of course, she always gives me advice. She's such a smart, competent, you know, successful businesswoman. She ran for mayor of Portland, Oregon. You know, oh, she's, wow. um, she's your mom is your mom is a huge part of yeah, your, I mean, your life. Right? Yeah, she's like, a, she seems really cool. Huge part of my life. You know, it's just such a you know, not, not just my mom, but mentor. You know, rock solid. You know, person in my life. I would be, it'd be hard for me to do a project like this if I didn't feel like I had her support. But she's also been really honest with me. You know, for the first time in a long time, that you know, this puts her into a somewhat vulnerable place. Like she's worried about my safety. Um, and I think that certainly she has some experience mountaineering. You know, she's climbed mountains. She took me out on some of my first mountains. So maybe she's she's the one to be blaming herself for going time machine 20 years ago and taking me out and showing me how amazing mountains can be mm-hmm. um but she's never been to the himalayas she's never been to some of these places and of course you know you read about these places and the the media and then there is some truth to it that there's some serious danger out there um and so she's also worried and you know is trying to sit back and you know just digest all of this so i think that's one of the blessings of this is the support and love i have for my family but also i would say absolutely without a doubt one of the most challenging pieces of this is feeling that i know that i'm going to do something for the next six months and there's people that are close to me that are going to be sitting there worrying about me for the next six months you know some of my friendships close friends that i've had that i've seen over the last few weeks that don't necessarily live in portland or live other places you know when saying goodbye to them and i'm not going to see them until the summer have just Mm -hmm. given me some a little longer hugs, a little more lingering, a little bit more yeah, am thoughtful. I gonna see, am I going to yeah, see this guy kinda, again? You know that kind of stuff, and it's it's uh, like I said. I mean, it puts it. It's real, you know. And having, like I said, just been on this mountain um, and known somebody who passed away doing the exact thing that I was doing certainly puts that into you know real perspective for mm-hmm. sure. So. Well, good luck and Godspeed. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's great I, talking uh, to you. No, I super appreciate you having me on the podcast. It's uh, it's fantastic to be here. And, you know, you're, you're an inspiration, you know, for all the, all the people out there doing amazing things. We mentioned the Iron Cowboy, and there's so many countless other people not to mention. But, you know, all, all of the people and just the, the enemy, everyone just living there, dreaming big, setting big goals, being ambitious, health, fitness, all that sort of stuff. It, it's huge. So, uh um, yeah, hopefully people will can follow along with our project and it's um, uh, you know beyond seven two dot com. That's the number seven two is the website. You'll probably put it up. Yeah. On your so website. no, no, no. Yeah, we'll get it. Yeah. Let's let's break it all down. Yeah. So <clears throat> basically, this thing's kicking off January first, essentially. And the way to get on board and follow along and participate online and in real time is to go to the website beyond seven two dot com. Also, the Twitter uh, and Instagram are both 
beyond underscore seven two. Yeah, correct. Exactly. You gotta and get that underscore in yeah, there. Yeah, beyond <laughs> underscore seven two. Those are the two places. Yeah. And uh, if you want to donate or you want to learn more about the uh, Alliance for a Healthier Generation, all that information is on Beyond 17. It's a beautiful website, by Thank the you. way. It's Thank really you. cool how yeah. it's all laid out, and you can kind of really uh, visualize what this is going to entail. So everybody should go check that out. Yeah. And uh, it's extraordinary, man. You know, I wish you the best of luck. It's going to be quite the adventure. Thank you so much. Thank for you, you, of course, and for us to be following along. And I hope that uh, I hope that not only do you break the record, but you get to the other side intact and safe. And uh, and when you do, I hope that you'll come back here and uh, tell us all about oh, it. Oh, it'll be my pleasure. Hopefully we come back and uh, have some good stories for you of uh, the, the successes and the failures and the ups and downs and the lesson learns and the, the, the soul searching and then hopefully the the world record, uh, bringing that hall home and, uh, inspiring some folks out there. So thank you for the, having me on the show and yeah. the well wishes and coming back. Absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll do that this summer. Hopefully a ex- exciting follow up. So thanks. And, and, thanks uh, so much. people out that are listening, if you, I think it would be cool also as a sort of, uh, measure of support to, uh, Send Colin some tweets, too. So when you're trekking on your way to the South Pole and if you can get – if your sat phone is working and you can see your Twitter feed, uh, that you could show him a little bit of love because he's going to be a little lonely out there. For sure. That's what we want. We want interaction (laughs) through this whole thing. This is not me in a vacuum. I want people giving shout-outs, just telling me what they're doing in their day, all this sorts of stuff. So that's the whole point is for us to be tracking this stuff real time, and Jenna will be helping to facilitate that. But it will be me responding in that. So any any interactions or shout-outs are greatly, greatly appreciated appreciate it while i'm out there so at beyond underscore seven two uh yeah that's it right yeah that's it uh final thing though i remember the name of the guy okay yeah the the trucker yeah so his name well his name his his god-given name and the name that he had at yale was tony blake tony blake so i think he's older than you i don't know how exactly old is but he changed his name to sifaway baleka okay there's an article about him on sports illustrated and there's an incredible video of him and kind of his his trajectory from swimmer to trucker. And now he's like revolutionizing the trucking industry by um, by implementing all these wellness programs. Because these guys, I mean, talk about an obesity oh, problem. Yeah. These guys just crazy take life. amphetamines and life. drink Red Bull and yeah. eat Cheetos all day and drive cross country. Yeah. And they're on these crazy timelines. They don't take care of themselves. And, you know, it's a terrible mess. So this guy's actually revolutionizing that industry by by implementing all these programs to get these guys healthy so it's cool um and former yale swimmer tony yale, good, right? yale swimming alum to yale swimming along tony yeah. if you're out there you got to come on this podcast we will we've been Rich, trying to work sure. it out he just isn't in la and he's driving around and doing these programs <laughs> he's, all he's the time trucking. so it's, yeah it's a scheduling <laughs> thing really but yeah. we've been we've been trying to make it work so oh, it's awesome it, it will see, happen at some point awesome to see yale, yale yeah. swimmers doing cool things so absolutely mad man. respect for that yeah cool right all right on. thanks rich for having me much appreciated absolutely man yeah peace Plants. all right we did it that's the show i hope you guys enjoyed that i enjoyed it don't forget to go to beyond72.com and also at beyond underscore 72 on both instagram and twitter for real-time updates on colin's progress if you enjoyed this podcast i have no doubt that he would love to hear from you on social media send him a tweet leave him a comment on facebook or instagram Uh, That will be sure to put some much-needed wind in this guy's sails. So send him some love. Send him some support. Uh, Lots of amazing resources in this week's show notes on the episode page at richroll.com, including ways you can learn more and get involved. So make a point of checking that out. 
And while you're at it, make a point of subscribing to my newsletter. No spam, just good stuff. If you want access to the entire RRP catalog beyond the most recent 50 episodes that are available on iTunes, well, I've got an app for that, and that app is free. Just search Rich Roll in the App Store. It'll pop right up. That's that. For all your plant-powered and RRP swag and merch needs, because you know you got those needs. I can feel it. You feel it in your loins, right? Go to richroll.com. We got organic T-shirts. We got plant-powered tech tees. We got sticker packs. We have nutritional products. We have fine art prints, all kinds of groovy, cool stuff to amp up your wellness experience in the world. Keep sending in your questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. Check out my online video courses at mindbodygreen.com, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, The Art of Living with Purpose. Julie and I are actually in the processes of getting ready to record a third course with mindbodygreen.com. That's going to be on relationships. I'll be sharing more about that in coming weeks, but pretty excited about that. And you know what, you guys? Thank you. Just thanks for all the support that you have shown me for supporting the show, for telling your friend, for sharing it on social media, all that good stuff, for using the Amazon banner ad. I love you guys. You guys are amazing. And I will see you guys back here soon. Peace. Plants. Yeah.